G'day, May 40 here. So why on earth did Joe Biden go visit Israel in a time of war? No other U.S. president has visited a site of war when the war is still going on, let alone a war for other countries. I mean, what on earth was uh, Joe Biden <laughs> doing in, in Israel? Like, during a time of war, it's insane, it's inexplicable. So here's how I understand it. Either Joe Biden understands some things that no other United States president has ever understood, that he has a wisdom and a perception that no other United States president has possessed, or there's just something unique about this situation that just calls for an American president to go visit it right now. The only other leading American politician who I could think of who might do something like this is Donald Trump, which is why Steve Saylor keeps talking about how Joe Biden is the most Trumpian of all American politicians aside from Donald Trump. I mean, there's no good strategic American reason for Joe Biden to go visit Israel during a time of war. It was just pure ego that endangers the United States. It was against American best interests. It was similar to Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan. Right? That was not in Taiwan's interest. It was not in America's interest. It endangered both Taiwan and the United States, but it felt good for Nancy Pelosi's ego. And for Joe Biden to visit Israel at this time, well, I guess it must have felt good for his ego, but it, it's hard to imagine, like, how on earth did that, that do any actual good for America or for Israel or for, for Gazans to show up there at a time of war? So either Joe Biden possesses a wisdom that no other American president has, or this situation is unlike any other situation that has ever presented to an American president, or he's doing this for extraneous, probably egotistical reasons. Right? You may be wondering, how is Thomas Baden Reese doing? Tell you, I wanted to tell you about how insanely happy I am and how insanely happy I've been away from all this YouTube political crap, really. Because I, 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 lots of people in our movement or in our circles talk about the need for people to develop an inner life, to be, you know, to have a good spiritual life. But I will say that my spiritual life, my, my inner life is A-OK. -okay. It is perfect. I doubt there is a person more content on this planet than I am. I am seeking change. There isn't one. There isn't a change around the corner. We're in this total limbo state. You see, we can't, the, the, the van isn't going to fall over the edge of the cliff. But at the same time, it's not going to um, get, get out of its precarious situation and drive off over the horizon. That's not going to happen either. So you're just left in this limbo state. And it's really annoying because at least at the beginning of COVID, we could predict the agenda and things seem to make sense. But the longer and longer this has gone on, the more difficult it, it appears to decode the agenda. And of course, playing into all of this is the fact that my predictions were wrong. And I said, I said there would be a collapse by last summer and there hasn't been. And that was keeping me going. You know, in the first year and a half of COVID, that was what's kept me going. And then it didn't happen. And then some people say, Wow. I mean, how empty must his life be that his, his whole reason to keep going in life, to keep living, is his prediction, is to see his prediction fulfilled that everything's going to fall apart. I, I am stream sniping Stephen J. James here.
said, well, Thomas, it'll happen by Christmas, but it didn't. It didn't happen by Christmas. We're now in January. So, well, we're essentially coming into February, in fact. So where is it going to happen? It, when, where, when, is, when, is, when is the collapse going to happen? I don't believe it is. Of course, there's always stories in the media which make you think, ooh, this could go somewhere, like the Kazakhstan story, for example. But where the hell do these things go in the end? They go nowhere. And so you're left in this limbo state. You're left in the limbo state. Okay. I will tell you now, my big, one of my big productions is about the destruction of Israel in September of 2022. And still in this, at this stage, even though I'm saying all oh, my predictions would be wrong, I'm still kind of thinking, ooh, you know what? It could still happen by then. So, you know, but I wanted to say, if it doesn't happen by then, I, I will definitely then kind of go away until such a time is 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 there's an emergency situation and I'm quite a loss quite a loss for for the rest of us okay supposedly this uh, this photo from a pro palestinian rally in warsaw has shocked the world we've identified the young woman in the photo meet marie anderson she's a norwegian medical student at the medical university of warsaw fifth year student she hails from Oslo, Norway. She's married to a Jordanian. Okay, so it's normal, natural, and even healthy that people just instinctively side with their own team. And she's just siding. She's adopting her husband's team and just instinctively siding with her husband's team. I don't think there has to be a lot more to it than, than that. So you probably heard about that rocket that fell on a hospital in Gaza. And the... the ironic thing the fascinating thing is that this rocket right with this misfired rocket by palestinian islamic jihad it probably achieved more this past week than hamas succeeded with all its successful missile launches this is an opinion from israeli columnist nakam barnier right so sometimes you succeed more with a failure than you do with a, a success because even with this failure of Palestinian Islamic Jihad sending a rocket into its own hospital. They managed to galvanize Arab Muslim opinion against Israel and forestall any Joe Biden meetings with leading Arab leaders because this is what happens during in time, times of intense conflict, right? intense emotion. People just behave in a primal, tribalistic fashion, which is probably normal, natural, and most times healthy. Let's get a little bit more on this. On October 17th, an explosion occurred in the courtyard of Al-Ahli Arab Hospital in Gaza City, killing civilians. Palestinian officials blamed Israel, but a visual analysis by the Wall Street Journal shows that the explosion was caused by a failed rocket launched from inside Gaza, where Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad have been shooting rockets into Israel since the war began two weeks ago. At around 6.59 p.m. local time, four cameras capture the moments before and after the incident. The journal geolocated and verified the timing of the footage and mapped each camera's vantage point. Camera one, a live feed webcam located just south of Tel Aviv, looks south at Gaza. Camera two, a surveillance camera in Israel near the northern border of Gaza, also facing south. Camera 3, a live-streamed Al Jazeera news broadcast in western Gaza, faces east. 
and camera four, a bystander cell phone video just southeast of the hospital where the explosion occurred. With this combined view, we can see the failed rocket launch and resulting explosion. At about 6.59, camera two near the Gaza border shows what rocket experts say is a barrage of short-range rockets, likely capable of traveling between 12 and 25 miles, being launched from western Gaza northeast toward Israel. Then, about 20 seconds later, we see what experts say is a long-range rocket launched from Gaza. The rocket was launched in a northeastern trajectory toward Israel. Ten seconds after launch, a tiny flash of light is seen, and the rocket starts to veer back west. The flash and change in trajectory are consistent with a failed rocket, not with Israel's Iron Dome defense system shooting it down. Weapons experts the journal spoke to say this change in trajectory is caused by the explosion of the rocket motor. In camera three, the Al Jazeera footage facing east, we can see this minor explosion. Then a trail of fire spreads as the motor blast ruptures the rocket casing and ignites the fuel. The rocket heads west in the direction of camera three with the hospital in its path. 15 seconds after launch, the rocket fails completely and breaks apart. There's a small explosion on the ground, then a second, larger explosion at the site of the hospital. A nearby resident captures the moment of impact facing northwest toward the hospital. Fire engulfs the courtyard and burns for an extended period. Experts say the large fire is likely due to the amount of fuel still in the rocket just after launch. Explosives experts who reviewed the blast footage and photos of the aftermath see further evidence that the failed rocket was the cause of the explosion on the ground. This crater shows an impact pattern coming from the east in line with the rocket's path. The shallowness of the crater is also consistent with impact from a failed rocket. Experts say the cars closest to the impact crater were likely hit with fragments from the rocket, causing one to explode and burning several others. These marks next to the crater and damage to the buildings show that the fragments from the impact flew across the grassy areas where civilians were sheltering. Failed rockets are not uncommon in the long-standing conflict between Hamas and Israel. The United Nations determined that in the 2022 flare-up between the two sides, 20% of rockets fired from Gaza failed and in three cases likely resulted in large numbers of civilian casualties. Hey, interesting video there from the Wall Street Journal. I will share the link. So meanwhile, while I grab that link, you're probably wondering what's going on with decoding the gurus here they are speaking to extremism researcher julia ebner what type of personality is extra is attracted to religious and political extremism yeah definitely i would say immersed myself is actually the the term i now prefer to use because it's the most kind of anthropological term i can think of <laughs> um but yeah in my kind of in these immersion experiences i i definitely encountered a lot of individuals who'd gone down the radicalization spiral because of some kind of identity crisis. A lot of them were, I guess, rooted in traumatic childhood experiences or some kind of traumatic 
and and transformative experience that happened early on in their life. So in other words, they are lowly people and attaching yourself to some sort of extremist or, or cult group is a way to find personal connection. And it's probably same reasons exactly drive people to watch a lot of live streams. Lives, but some of them would also just have have something come up during the teenage years or later on in life where they went through identity crisis in one shape or form that can be in the form of a masculinity crisis. I would even say I also encountered women with what I would call femininity crisis. We don't even talk about that very much because we mostly talk about masculinity crisis. But there were also yeah, a lot of questions these women posed about their role in society, about womanhood and and yeah, and questions like that. For example, when I joined female misogynist communities, which is really which sounds like an oxymoron, but these women do exist and they glorify even things like domestic violence and hyper-conservative family and family models. And we, um, we recently talked about Pearl Davis, so <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> familiar with that side of the pool. That's, yeah, yeah. But a lot of them in general, I would say whether I looked at Islamist extremists in ISIS networks or at neo-Nazis or misogynist communities, it was very often that sense that they, they felt like they... Yeah, people want to feel alive. People want to feel connected. And so some people find that through getting drunk, doing drugs, watching porn, or doing all of those things and joining some sort of extremist or cult-like group. It needed to look for some new form, very strong form of group belonging. And very often, I mean, a lot of them were also driven by some by some deeper sense of loneliness or lacking kind of social connection in their in their real lives. And they found that in these new communities, in these new groups, where often these groups then become almost like family replacements and they even talk in, in kinship language to each other. So yeah, I think that was a commonality on a on a psychological level. I Julia, there's a we were recently talking to the hosts of the Conspirituality podcast and they were asking our opinions about this kind of age-old debate amongst researchers and amongst public intellectuals about the role of ideology versus the role of social factors, deprivation or geopolitical things and psychological characteristics of individuals. Like what is the dominating factor or what's the mix in there and and obviously of people like sam harris that have like quite strongly argued for ideology as the key component and other researchers arguing that uh, psychological and social factors are more significant and i i'm curious from your work what you think about that mix uh, and if there are is if there is any ingredient that is particularly potent in pushing people towards extremist groups yeah yeah all i mean most of today's evidence suggests that ideology alone cannot really drive extremism that it's usually a combination of different factors and ideology or narratives are often just an outlet for personal struggles for this is this is exactly right ideology and, and religion po extreme politics extreme sports are often just an an outlet for personal frustrations. Psychological crisis. So it's usually a combination of, of there is a 
a kind of a personal grievance or a personal, there are different psychological factors that, that play a big role and that then are channeled towards an ideology, which is also why there are so many similarities across different ideologies. I, in my first book, The Rage, I examined the parallels between Islamist extremism and far-right extremism. And there are so many, there are so many parallels in terms of the radicalization pathways of individuals, but also in terms of the narratives where you always have the same type of narrative and you can just replace certain words with others and you essentially have the same ideology, like uh, Muslims are at war with the West or the West is at war with Muslims or there is an inevitable conflict of races, cultures and religions. Yeah, she she makes some good points. There are some inherent conflicts in certain situations between different races and different religions, but in different situations, the conflicts are not nearly as intense. All right, Ricardo has joined the chat. He says, Jignats, meaning Jewish nationalists, are succumbing to the dangers of the e-personality, marginalized losers sharing their genocidal fantasies online. So if you're sharing genocidal fantasies online, particularly in an identifiable way, that is something that's going to get you socially marginalized. I remember just walking down the street just outside of Beverly Hills, and this uh, Israeli guy starts yelling, death to the Arabs. And I was like, whoa. Now, this guy didn't have a prestigious job. All right, he had the kind of job that uh, you essentially can't be canceled from. But uh, yeah, sh sharing any kind of genocidal fantasy uh, online is is not going to usually result in a happy, healthy, successful life. Uh, Ricardo says the people of color are not going to let them indulge their violent anti-social tendencies. Well, someone making a tweet, all right, uh, that's usually as far as it's going to go. So this idea that uh, people of color are not going to allow Jews to tweet or to express uh, their opinions uh, online, that's absurd. Am I going to bring on Kristen Ruby for Frame Game Conspiracy Theories? Don't know who Kristen Ruby is. I want to hear more about Elliot's plan to save the Palestinians by deporting them to Madagascar. Well, I'm a Zionist. I, I support the, the Jewish state. I want the Jewish state to prosper and the existence of Palestinians who hate it right next to it it's obviously a grave danger to the Jewish state. So, yeah, I would love the Palestinians to up and move. I would love them to go to Jordan. I would love them to go to Egypt. But I understand why Jordan, Egypt, and other surrounding Arab Islamic nations don't want to bring them in because, one, they would be acceding to essentially what was the ethnic cleansing that uh, prepared the way for the modern state of, of Israel, and, two, the Arab Islamic nations surrounding the Palestinians don't see any benefit to them from importing them. So I expect Egypt and, and Jordan to want to act in their own better interests. Ricardo says, Jignas better be careful. They're not in control anymore. People of color led protests happening even with no media support. Well, on American college campuses, uh, that's probably where you get more of a reflection of overall first world experiences than in the rest of America. That's where you have the ro most robust criticism of Israel and where you have Arabs and Muslims feeling most comfortable with you know, showing the flag for their side. So I don't think that uh, what's going on at American college campuses is you know, some great uh, shame that you have Arabs and Muslims you know, rallying and showing the flag for, for their side. I expect in a time of conflict, people on either side will just instinctively side with their team. 
and they're not going to try to think about things in some kind of hyper-objective way. The pets are off their leash, biting their owners. Well, uh, Jews are still about 1.5% of the population of the United States. They have a great deal of uh, influence and uh, agency and expertise in the United States, so they tend to punch above their numbers in many different areas. I don't think uh, Jews are going to disappear from public life in America. American Jews are usually irrelevant in what terms? <laughs> I mean, if you're t talking in terms of economics, no, they're not irrelevant. If you're talking in terms of education, they're not irrelevant. In terms of culture, they're not irrelevant. But in playing for the Dallas Cowboys offensive line, yeah, they are irrelevant. So I'm irrelevant to 99.99999% of humanity. And I suspect that you are equally irrelevant to 99.9999% of humanity, but we both have people who love us. Baruch Hashem. These narratives, these kind of overall threat narratives and apocalyptic ideas are very often inherently part of, of extremist ideologies. What now in my in my latest research, and I guess, I mean, Chris, you're very, very much familiar with that, having been involved in that research as well. But what kind of shows up as the most, I guess, significant trait or the most significant characteristic in radicalization pathways towards violence is is a mix of identity fusion. So when the personal group, when the personal identity becomes one with the group identity, but also then dehumanizing and demonizing labels that are applied to the outgroup. And that is, of course, inherently often inherently part of an extremist ideology. It's not just part of an extremist ideology. It's a normal, natural, and to, to a de degree, depending on the circumstance, can be, you know, even healthy. All right, in times of extreme stress, all right, we don't tend to have a great deal of empathy for the outgroup. All right, so lack of empathy for outgroups or having a part of ourselves deep down inside who regards outgroups as subhuman is pretty much a universal part of the human condition. Now, people who are aligned with extremist politics or with cults, all right, they, they came to these extreme positions from a place of loneliness, disconnection. They are therefore more likely to manifest their psychosocial wounds in a more blatant manner than people who have things to lose. Like, for example, the great replacement idea mm. or, or jihadist ideologies that would already have that <clears throat> demonization narrative as an integral part of, of what, what their framework is, is standing for. And then okay, violence condoning... Add, uh, Duvid to the show. I saw, Duvid, that a, a president of a, a synagogue in uh, Detroit was killed. Do you, you know anything about this story? Yeah, God forbid. Shocking. I mean, uh, I, I know the woman. I, I was friend with the, friends with the woman for uh, 10 years. I remember the first time she walked in there and uh, you know, she led to went on to become president. Um, as far as the story, there's no knowledge of why it happened or motive. I mean, God forbid she was found on the street, stabbed multiple times. And uh, there was a trail of blood going back to her apartment. And the police believe that the stabbing happened in her apartment. And there's no known motive. Um, and the police are 
have not determined whether, you know, God forbid it was a hate crime or uh, a robbery. And also she's a very active political activist. She, you know, she helped uh, campaign for Dana Nessel. She's one of the leaders of the Democratic Party, Dana Nessel, the uh, attorney general, you know, the, the very anti-Trump uh, lesbian woman, pro-abortion. She also worked for Eliza Slotkin, Hillary Clinton, and uh, she's friends with Rashida Tlaib. Uh, and there was another, like, two politicians, activists uh, killed in Detroit in the last few weeks. So there's also speculation that there could be some, that, that it could be connected to her political, act, political activity. And that could be anything like, you know, God forbid, uh, abortion, uh, uh, pro-life or any uh, political wacko. But uh, it's tough to say, like, typically, like, guns are very easy to come by. So if it was just a regular robbery, um, they probably would have came with a gun, not a knife. Uh, you know, like, like I said, like, like, everyone has a gun in Detroit. It's not very hard to get one. Um, so, like, God forbid, just a bunch of unknowns. And it's made the national media, um, you know, because of the war and speculation that has something to do with the war and uh you know so god forbid and what how dangerous is that area where she was living i think she's probably relatively safe um i mean it's like a gentrified area apartment complex i mean there's always risk everywhere in detroit you know generally um you know, there's about 400 murders in detroit a year uh, sometimes like three to four hundred, about seventy-five percent of them go unsolved. About ninety percent of those murders are black-on-black -black crime. So, uh, you, you know, not, like non-blacks being killed in Detroit is not actually that common, although it's a very dangerous place in general. And what can you tell me about the synagogue that she was the president of? Um, well, it was. The only synagogue that lasted the uh, you know the '67 uh, riots revolution, where the Jews basically fled to uh, the suburbs, and that was for multiple reasons. Possibly it had African American converts that held it together, and it was like a businessman mincha minion. So even though the Jews had moved out, that there's still a lot of Jews who worked in Detroit, and they had a mincha minion uh, that uh, kept it around. And it was historically orthodox, and then it switched to conservative. Uh, in the early 2000s, they'd even tried to like sell the building. The and they they were disallowed like legally. Uh, they weren't able to like sell the building and keep the profit. And uh, and then a few people got involved in trying to renovate the synagogue, bring it back together. I was one of the early people, and I had wanted to make an orthodox minion. And, uh, you know, do it in like a more orthodox Hasidic style, but that was not popular. And uh, you know, we had many in a while, there were Jews coming um, and, and I you know, accepted the liberalism. So we just prayed there were, there were women and it was mostly liberal. And uh, after about five, 10 years of, uh, you know, trying to rebuild it up and there was enough of a Jewish presence there through democratic processes, they basically went liberal social justice, um, hired a reform rabbi, uh, you know, Harvard alumni, female, um, 
and turned it uh, away from, you know, they canceled Morning Minion for years. Like I woke up and drove to Detroit early. Uh, just, I think it was just Thursday that we did it, but tried to make a Thursday morning minion. I went there Friday nights in the summer and, uh, you know, I, I, I helped create a lunch and learn and like brought in speakers. I'd even made, like, you know, donations. I'd spoke lunch and learn and uh, people weren't really interested in the Torah and uh, classical Judaism. So once there was enough of a Jewish presence, presence they went liberal and, uh, you became like a social justice synagogue and they got like a whole bunch of money, like, uh, like five, six million dollars from foundations. Um, the rabbis, like a Wexner scholar. Uh, this woman, Sam Wool, is has Orthodox family. So she was one of the few women that actually knew how to lead services. She had went to like a conservative Jewish day school. I actually go, her uncle goes to young Israel. I, I was friendly with her uncle who also was like a chazan and lead services at young Israel. So she was uh, a prayer leader and, uh, you know, had Orthodox family. And uh, although she tiered liberal in, in the sense, like she would go in where Yamaka lead prayer services, um, her politics are unclear. Like she was a rising star in the Democratic Party, um, but she was also a member of the AJC. So she was friends with Rashida Tlaib. She didn't go all the way left like uh, Jewish Boys for Peace or If Not Now and like being pro-Palestinian. Um, but all, all the other issues like, you know, like abortion, feminism, uh, immigration, uh, economic justice, uh, you know, she was a full-time uh, leftist activist and, and she was big time. Like you could see all the papers uh, publishing her name, um, you know, like even Hakeem Jeffries, the congressional staffer. I mean, she was considered a congressional staff, staffer. So it could be some sort of, uh, you know, not even just anti-Semitism, a targeted political assassination. Now, Jews have uh, complicated relations with, with blacks. I'm just trying to think off, off the top of my head of some ways that, that Jewish reactions to, to blacks are different from those of non-Jewish whites with similar education and levels of IQ. So it seems to me that Jews typically lead white flight when, when blacks move into a neighborhood, yet uh, Jews seem to be a little bit more pro-civil rights than your... I'm not sure they're more pro-civil rights than than whites with the same level of IQ and university education. Uh, Jews tend to be more more likely to shy away from physical confrontation than uh, than your your typical white person. Uh, Jews <coughs> often find it, fa particularly Orthodox Jews, find it you know fascinating frequently to talk about blacks. Uh, you know, it can be a topic that can engage you know twenty, thirty, forty you know minutes, an hour. So Jews in, in America used to typically employ blacks as servants until they switched to Hispanics in the last 30 years or so. When, when you account for the same level of IQ and the same level of secular education, what differences, if any, would you see between the way that uh, Jews relate to blacks and the way that non-Jewish whites relate to blacks? Well, yeah, I mean, Jews kind of fulfilled that management position and, and, and uh, you know, so she was a democratic activist and pushing political things and kind of rose as a leader. And, you know, obviously, you know, she was probably making a bunch of money and, uh, you know, relatively upper middle class and, uh, you know, had just these huge amounts of funding for her various uh, activities. Uh, I mean, there's been a trend, like what you were talking about, I said that Jews 
fleeing the urban areas for the suburbs. And we've talked about that before, where I said, like, basically all Jews live in blue areas um, because Jews could only flee so far. They, they're, they're connected to the urban areas. And basically all urban areas now are multicultural and Jews typically are not going to go all the way into the red area. So like in Metro Detroit, the fleeing into the suburbs has hit a hard stop. Like they're not, Jews are not continuing to move further out. And in the last decade, there's been a return for Jews to try to re-go into cities and things like gentrification. It's not typically Orthodox, although the Orthodox might join in gentrification at some point once it's been successful. So like Duvid or, or Sam were on the front lines of the return for, for Jews because you know, like she actually was living in Detroit and, you know, because Orthodox Jews need the community structure in place. They need a minion and the kosher services. Uh, however, you would find individual Jews. Uh, but uh, you have the gentrification um, aspect and it's very difficult uh, for Jews because if I'm going to Metro Detroit, like I, like I don't want to be average with the blacks because like the blacks, God forbid, that live in uh, below the poverty line, the average black and uh, it has a much lower education level. So typically the Jews end up in the gentrified area trying to be management. And then there's the uh, you're the savior complex where are you really benefiting the black people by moving in and like the democratic leadership and trying to uh, you know, be leaders in the community or do blacks actually do better um, having their own leadership controlling their own cities than, uh, you know, so to say, like putting Jews in charge of them. And so it's also remotely possible if it was a, a black crime as opposed to, which would be the most likely, I mean, statistically, uh, you, you know, it's probably over 90% that it was a black who uh, who killed her, although there's no knowledge, but I'm just saying just on the demographics and uh, you know, who commits murders in Detroit, uh, whether it was motivated or something like that, or whether it could have even been a political statement, like you Jews are not going to come back in here into the city and take control of our city. Um, like, even if you're nice and you're smart, but uh, um, I mean, because she was nice and smart, but also she was Democratic leadership who is basically trying to force like a liberal agenda or, you know, tell the blacks what's best for them. And is uh, Detroit on any sort of trajectory right now? Is it improving? Is it getting worse, staying the same? We had the white mayor, Mike Duggan, who actually married an Arab, Arab woman. And there was, after the bankruptcy and the ousting of the mayor, Kwame Kilpatrick, who was, you're just like taking bribes and doing unethical things in Detroit. Um, then you had Mayor Dave Bing, former basketball player. And there was a rise of more non-white, more, more uh, non-blacks moving into Detroit, gentrification, uh, business coming. And, and there was politics and disputes with uh, the black majority about how good that was. But it was generally going in the more direction of more multiculturalism, immigration, uh, gentrification, and then COVID-19 hit. And uh, it largely put a stop to uh, the non-black uh, migration into Detroit. And since then, it's been at a little bit of a standstill. So you can see like the Jews are basically part of the gentrification, like the downtown synagogue just like spent $6 million to build like, uh, you know, re revamp, re revamp the building. There's been a few like apartment buildings. So in the gentrified area, it's extremely expensive. Like apartments are like New York prices. It costs like $2,000 um, a month for rent. 
And then if you go a mile or two out, uh, you still have abandoned houses and uh, the standard of life, like, like saying that, you know, like uh, I, I used to talk about the price of lunch. So like the price of lunch in the gentrified area is going to be like, you're going to have to spend like $15, $20 on lunch. However, your, your average uh, African-American in Detroit, like at a, at a cheaper diner, they want to spend like four or $5 on lunch. So, so uh, it's probably the same in LA um, in some neighborhoods with like gentrification and uh, a newer batch of liberal Jews, un you know, university graduates. And uh, you know, also the last aspect, you know, what type of jobs do Jews do? So there's a lot in the medical profession, a lot of the banking is still headquartered in the urban areas in the medical profession. And then there's a lot of non-for-profits. So like of the Jews in Detroit, almost like half of them work for non-for-profits. And you know, so they're, they're somewhat being funded by outside sources that are pushing for uh, gentrification. Okay, let's uh, welcome Rodney to the show. Rodney, what, what are you seeing in the news these days that's grabbing your attention? Well, I don't think we should uh, assume by the way, is my uh, sound okay, Luke? Yeah, you're fine. Okay, great. Um, I don't think we should assume that this stabbing, uh, this uh, uh, that Dubit's talking about, has anything to do with what's going on in the Middle East. I mean, I think it's kind of funny that everybody's talking about anti-Semitism. You know, uh, Joe Biden talked about it. A lot of the Democratic members of Congress have been talking about it. But a lot of these people that are now decrying it have been, shall we say, interestingly silent when Jews have been attacked by black people in broad daylight on the streets of New York, which has been going on, what, two, three years now, Luke? We see it, you know, quite a bit. And there's you know, been crickets, even from people, you know, say, take New York, for instance, Jerry Nadler, uh, the last Jewish congressman, I believe, in uh, in uh, the New York area, um, New York City, uh, remarkably silent. And uh, Schumer, the same thing. We didn't uh, hear anything from them. And of course, now we see, uh, and then on the, on the right, we had decries of censorship and free speech and all that. And now they're actually in canceling and now they're wanting people canceled who don't tow their APAC talking line. So what I've gotten out of this whole mess, you know, since the uh, uh, attacks in Israel has been a whole lot of hypocrisy on both sides uh, of the aisle. Where was all the big league uh, Democratic politicians, where they've been for two years while Jews have been attacked in major U.S. cities uh, by, let's just say, a more important constituent in their party? It's kind of interesting. And, uh, you know, Republicans not not too long ago was talking about we shouldn't censor anybody. Everybody should have free speech. Nobody should be canceled and denied a job if, you know, for free speech. And yet they're calling just for that. They're wanting these kids that are protesting on campuses. And you know, I don't agree with all of those protests. Kids do dumb things when they're young. We all did. Uh, but should that should they have to carry that proverbial cross for the rest of their career? But that's used to be the that used to be the argument of conservatives when when the left would dig out a 25 year old statement or a 10 year old tweet from somebody and, you know, use it to get them fired. So it's just, you know, the hypocrisy, the emotionally charged oversimplifications, 
you know, the fact that we've not learned anything from, you know, 50 years of this mess. And uh, we're, it's probably going to get a whole lot uh, uh, worse before it gets better. Uh, from the war point of view, I think Israel's in a conundrum. If they go into Gaza proper, they're facing a Stalingrad type of situation. And it'll probably lick Stalingrad look like a, a cakewalk because Hamas has had how many years to tunnel that place and set booby traps. There'll be a sniper in, uh, you know, in every burned out or blown up building rubble like it was in Stalingrad. And uh, there'll be uh, more suicide bombers than what they can handle. So I think they're, they have a lot of trepidation about going into an urban warfare situation where there's 2 million you know, people, maybe more. And then up on the northern border, Hezbollah is a different animal. And I, I seem to remember the last time Israel had an outing with Hezbollah, it wasn't a smashing success by by any means. And uh, so I think there are people really need to hold their breath. Now, you know, these these reports of, you know, hostages being taken, civilians, you know, I've said on your show a lot of times that uh, there's no more cowardly act than to target civilians by either side. And that's what's that's what's happening here. And the bigger question is how much, how big, of, you know, how, how much pound of flesh, how many pounds of flesh does Israel want? Uh, they've now killed probably the same amount on each side. Uh, Hamas took out 13, maybe 13, 1400 Israelis. Uh, there's probably been equal to or the same amount of Palestinians now in Gaza has been killed. How far does this have to go before it spirals out of control? I mean, uh, you know, World War One was started over something like this. And uh, interesting, the, the excuse that they did this to break up uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel's, you know, establishing diplomatic relations. I'm not really buying that because Saudi Arabia promptly came out on the side of, of the Palestinians. And if they were that close uh, to establishing relations, if it was that important, at least to the Saudis, they could have just said nothing and uh, it wouldn't have mattered. But the fact that they just almost immediately, they were one of the first two that basically blamed, uh, blamed Israel. And uh, also the propaganda, the statements going back and forth. People seem to forget that uh, in wartime, both sides lie. I don't take anything as gospel from the uh, uh, Israelis, uh, no pun intended, and I don't think I don't take anything from Hamas's gospel, no pun intended there either, because both sides lie. You know, we've heard about decapitated babies, but we certainly haven't seen evidence that was reported from one IDF soldier to one foreign correspondent, and it seemed to take root. I remember back in the first Gulf War when Iraqis were accused of dragging babies out of. Uh, out of incubators, and that turned out to be a bold-faced lie. The crying uh, Kuwaiti uh, that was crying before Congress turned out to be the daughter of an Iraqi opposition person in the United States and had never even been to Iraq. She'd been born in the United States. So, you know, I think people jumping uh, on this to gin up, you know, thing. Nikki Haley, for instance, she's been absolutely repulsive. She wants to run out and show her manhood by... Uh, you know, getting more uh, other people's kids and grandkids to, to die for a foreign cause, where really we have no interest uh, there. And I also remember Benjamin Netanyahu during the 
Obama administration standing in Congress when he was invited to address Congress when Obama was working out the Iran deal originally. He came to the Congress at the request of Republicans to speak out against it. He did. And I remember his statements very clearly saying, we don't need the United States to help us or defend us. We can do that ourselves. Well, you know, why don't we take the man at his word? Um, but it certainly is a great opportunity, at least, you know, Israel, that might have been their original thought was, let's just finish this off and just push them into Egypt across the crossing. Egypt won't take them and King uh, Abdullah and George not going to take them. Maybe that was there were some thoughts behind that. But there was also a great opportunity for uh, uh, neocons in both parties and Biden uh, to use this to send more money to Ukraine than, than to Israel. And I don't think that's going to work either. Uh, David, anything you want to jump in with here? Yeah, you know, I had a debate with Elliot on uh, Stephen James' channel the other day, and there's a big mismatch between what Israel wants to do and thinks is going to happen and what's likely to happen, and that's the expulsion of Gaza. Like, I, I was showing the tablet article just today that's still trying to push uh, you know, pressure on Egypt, saying, you know, the real problem here is that Egypt won't let Israel expel the Gazans into the Sinai. And uh, Israel's in a big quagmire because in all likelihood, there's two options, and that's either absorption of the Gazans into Israeli society or expulsion. And most Israelis know that and vastly favor expulsion. Although you could say like expulsion is impossible, it's a war crime, it's not going to happen. They're going to fight. They're, they're, you know, hundreds of thousands of them are going to uh, be willing to die other than expulsion. And, you know, Luke knows kind of the facts. Bradley knows the facts. He follows his Israeli media versus the American, you know, kind of like Hasbora to say like Israel, you know, Israeli Jews are kind of like American Jews where it's like, no, Israeli Jews are way far to the right. Um, you know, like even genocidal language, like what Duvid says, um, you know, we should just give all the people in Gaza Israeli citizenship. There's more people in Israel openly advocating for genocide than for that. And of the opinion that uh, somehow this is going to be resolved by pushing them into uh, the Sinai and other nations are going to take them, I would estimate it probably like half of Jews, I mean, half of Israelis, that's what they think is going to happen. And like even Elliot, even like, you know, Nathan Kofnitz are coming up, like, you know, trying to uh, defend that option. In terms of the military, like, you know, so right now the bombing, you know, that say Israel wants to get as many of them out of there as possible before the ground campaign. Um, I was on this channel, Defense Politics Asia, with a global panel of mostly military experts uh, last night. And Israel itself is saying, be ready for 10,000 soldiers to die um, for the invasion in, in Gaza, not, not just like the bombing, but actually soldier deaths. And they were comparing it to like uh, Vietnam with the tunnels and booby traps or like Rodney saying uh, Stalingrad uh, because Hamas has about like 40,000 fighters. Some people estimate between like 20 and 100,000 plus fighters. And even if they were to push the population out and then eventually they have to clear it, um, most military experts would estimate it's going to be like one Israeli death for every two or three uh, Gazan you know, deaths with all the booby traps and tunnels and even as is, is, israel is openly saying that 
and a lot of Israelis are, are ready for that. So like you know, when, when the Israeli general said, we're going to do this and it's going to cost 10,000 uh, Jewish lives, uh, a lot of Jews have accepted that. Uh, but that is still basically hinged upon um, the ability to expel the rest of the Gazans someplace else. So it's, it's a real disaster. Um, you know, like I pray for de-escalation and, and I've been kind of pushing like they got to absorb those people, give them citizenship. I'm sure Luke would vastly you know, argue about that in like Jewish Voice for Peace, like less than 10% of American Jews probably support what I'm saying and probably only like 2% of Israeli Jews support what I'm saying. So like, God forbid, there probably is going to be a war and there's probably going to be, um, I mean, so the people on uh, the, the uh, you know, the expert military people said that actually Israel's estimate of 10,000 soldier deaths is low. And they're estimating 20 to very 40, low, 20 to 40,000 to say like that. Let's say that there's no Iran or Hezbollah or bombing, but just just the battle between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. People are estimating it's going to cost 40,000 Jewish soldiers lives. Uh, Rodney, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I, I think ten thousand is uh, is is uh, projecting a lot of hope. I actually think it would probably uh, uh, they would lose uh, the IDF would lose probably three to four, maybe even five for every one Palestinian in Gaza, because they're they're going into a place that is fundamentally different since they left it, you know, under I think it was actually Sharon that you know handed it over to them of all people of all uh, prime ministers. And uh, we keep hearing that uh, the IDF has called up 300,000 troops. 90% uh, of that are reservists, uh, which would be equivalent uh, to maybe uh, uh, they don't even aren't even as active as our National Guards are here in the States. So 300,000 troops against, you know, you have a population of of uh, uh, of two million uh, in Gaza. And let's just say, let's just say for uh, sake of argument that uh, Hamas has 50,000 fighters. Those 50,000 fighters are going to be able to do a horrific amount of damage uh, because they're, they're, battle, they're battle tested. Now, the wild card is, and I suspect this is going to happen, as soon as they go into, by the way, all of those, the show of tanks and all of that, tanks don't function well in that type of setting. Uh, again, if you look at how many tanks the Soviets lost in the Battle of Berlin and how many tanks both sides lost to Stalingrad, tanks don't work good <laughs> in urban warfare. Um, so uh, uh, it's just, I mean, think uh, Mogadishu. Think what happened to us in Somalia uh, uh, on a much grander uh, and much bloodier uh, scale. And then, of course, they commit those troops going into Gaza can israel and from the point of from the point of view of manpower and logistics support a two-front war hezbollah is a totally different animal up on the north they have an excess of confirmed an excess of a hundred thousand uh, uh but uh, of troops uh far more advanced weaponry and uh i would venture to say that if hezbollah if israel uh, the idf commits and goes into gaza with a majority of the reservists down in the south, Hezbollah would probably go as far as Haifa before Israel could effectively stop them. And then we get into a situation which we're not supposed to know, we're not supposed to acknowledge, 
Well, we've been worried about Russians deploying nuclear weapons. I think Israel would be far more apt to deploy nuclear weapons than, you know, and if they're having Hezbollah come at them from the north and Hamas uh, tying them down uh, in Gaza, I think they would be more uh, uh, apt to deploy some sort of tactical nuke before Russia uh, ever would. And uh, Rodney, what do you think the, ch the chances are that there'll still be a Jewish state of Israel in 10 years? I'm optimistic, believe it or not. I, I, I really am, um, which is kind of different for me. Uh, but uh, I, I think that cooler heads usually prevail. And, you know, uh, we hear the two uh, scenarios that Duvid brought up, which is true. I've heard them, too either absorb them all and give them Israeli citizenship, that won't work. I mean, that's just not going to be work. I mean, think about it. Both Netanyahu had a hell of a time after he lost uh, to, uh, oh, I can't remember, uh, Natali Bennett when he lost to him. Remember, Netanyahu could have stayed in power if he'd have cut a deal with the Arab parties, the Arab Israeli parties, and Naftali Bennett refused. So when you have both the major power blocks refusing to make, you know, to basically cut a deal to become prime minister with the, uh, you know, the Arab uh, is Palestine. That goes to show you the state of affairs. That's where the apartheid stuff comes, uh, criticisms come from leveled against Israel. I mean, you know, we can say, oh, no, it's not. No, it's not. Well, there are certainly some shades of it uh, there. So you're not going to be able to absorb. And also there's the demographic issue. Are you going to give all of those Gazans and, uh, uh, Palestinians on the uh, on the West Bank, Israeli citizenship, that fundamentally changes. And the only time Jews want to change the demographics of a country is if it's someplace else but Israel. That's just fact uh, by their own statements. So that's not going to work. You're not going to uh, expel them either. That's not going to work. I mean, uh, you know, they're already having you know, problems regardless of the statements about pro, you know, we stand with Israel, but the whole time, I mean, here you got Biden saying, don't let your rage guide you. And the same thing's coming out of Europe. Fact is both sides need a state and they both need to be a state with self-determination and Israel, you know, uh, uh, the Palestinians have got to stop firing rockets and engaging in terrorist activities in Israel. And Israel can't be blockading the Palestinian state and starving them out. Uh, so that's a solution. And we keep hearing that two state solution, two state solution. And, uh, they're going to have to, at some point, and what I think I saw a, a, a really interesting article. It happened here in the United States though, where, uh, there was a, a young Arab, I think it was a teenager. I can't remember the age, but this, uh, I don't I think may have been Palestinian was murdered much like the rabbi was up in, in, in Detroit. And two uh, Jewish rabbis went to the funeral. And that got me to thinking, what happens if we start making the parents, Israeli parents, go to the funerals of the dead Palestinian kids and Palestinians go to the funerals of dead Israeli kids? At some point, you have to you know, realize that your children aren't, you know, it's not worth this political BS anymore. That's one of my biggest fundamental issues against war at all is it's always the, the chicken hawks are always screaming, you know, to send somebody else's kids and grandkids a fight. Both sides are going to have to come to the conclusion 
that they've lost enough children and grandchildren and they want it to stop. And I, I kind of think that might uh, that might happen. And I also saw an interesting article, I think Drudge posted, Luke, where the press in Israel is now feeling intimidated by publishing anything other than the, you know, the screaming war cries and the extremist stuff that we hear from among Israelis sometimes uh, the Duba talked about. So at some point you think that, uh, you know, but again, it always has to get worse before it gets better. And I'm just kind of a little concerned about what that worse is. I certainly don't want the U.S. entangled, you know, in all this. I, I think people, we hear people talking about the founding fathers. Well, George Washington was the first to say, stay out of foreign entanglements. And yet he's been disregarded throughout the, uh, you know, throughout the last you know two centuries since he died. We get entangled with Europe, which we didn't need to. We get entangled in the Middle East, NATO, all of this stuff. Why should we care if two countries are fighting when there's absolutely no national interest to the United States? I mean, Turkey and Greece, just to digress a little bit, are NATO allies, and they're always on the verge to war, of war. So how, who are we going to side in NATO if, if, if Greece and Turkey go at it? We have to just have to pick one. They're both NATO members. We're supposed to defend both of them. Are we going to deploy troops to, you know, to defend Turkey and Greece against one another? I mean, this is nuts. Uh, David, anything you wanted to say? Yeah, I mean, there's, God forbid, real possibilities of uh, World War III. And if you saw, like, I was seeing yesterday the uh, Russian, uh, you know, Dagestani uh, MMA fighters that just, like, dominating the the division's MMA. They were all, like, draped in Palestinian flags. They dedicated their victory. One of them even said, like, after the fight, like, send me to Palestine. Give me a weapon and send me to Palestine. Um and these protests, like, uh, you know, like, God forbid, like, the, the numbers are, are swelling hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands. Um, however, if the U.S. stays steady in not even necessarily going to war, but just can't, containing the battle, so it's just Israel versus Gaza, um, still, like, the Israeli side only works for the war. It only makes sense if they're going to be able to successfully expel the Palestinians. I think, I mean, Luke agrees. That, I'm not sure, maybe I'll put it straight to Luke, but uh, my impression is that the majority of Israelis right now think that they are that they have a decent chance of expelling the Palestinians and even like American uh, right-wing publication, uh, even somewhat mainstream leftist Americans are somewhat softly backing the expulsion. Then it gets into questions, uh, you know, like God forbid what we first started talking with Rodney also about World War II and the Holocaust uh, functionalist versus uh, instrumentalist is, did the Holocaust start as an expulsion and when that didn't work, turn into a genocide? And uh, you know, I also add that uh, most military experts believe that the bombing that Israel's doing serves no military purpose. It's not helping destroy Hamas, uh, the rockets, everything's underground, uh, mostly civilians being killed. And uh, you know, so why is Israel doing it? You know, one would be because, well, Israel doesn't want to lose lives, and it's kind of just like revenge, or they're doing the best with the technology they have because they know if they go in with troops, it's going to cost countless Israeli lives. And also because, like they said, they want to force an evacuation. As of now, Israel still has the order for an evacuation. They're still calling hospitals and other things and saying, you got to get out or we're going to bomb you. And uh, they're moving them into refugee camps 
within Israel, I think now there's 300,000 in one of them of people that have actually left. And, uh, you know, so I'll put it to you, Luke. I mean, do you agree that the majority of Israelis and even a sizable chunk of American Jews right now think that maybe they are going to somehow be able to get away with expelling them and pushing them into Egypt or getting foreign nations to take them? I, I don't believe so. And I haven't seen any any serious argument in that direction from any mainstream Jewish press, whether in, in America or in Israel. Now, would most Israelis prefer the Palestinians to disappear? Yes. But I, I don't don't think most Israelis believe that they can forcefully expel the, the Palestinians. Uh, Rodney, I thought it was absolutely bizarre that Joe Biden visited Israel uh, th- this week. There, there's absolutely no strategic or American interest that would argue for him doing so. The only possible reason that I can come up with that he visited Israel was for the sake of his own ego. How do you understand Joe Biden's visit to Israel this past week? Well, you know, he didn't accomplish anything. The so-called 20 aid trucks that he said was going to go into Gaza, he said he secured that. Um, That hasn't happened. He said they had to fix the road. Well, that's because in the immediate, you know, aftermath of October 7th, the Israeli Air Force bombed that gate. Um, we don't hear too much about it, but they, the Israeli Air targeted that gate and blew that gate up. And uh, But you don't need to fix a highway to get aid trucks in. Has anybody ever seen these military transport trucks? They do quite well off-road. So in 20 trucks, so that was all BS. I don't think it was ego, Luke. I think it was pure politics which was kind of bizarre, too, like he needs to shore up the Jewish vote. 68% of the Jewish vote voted for him anyway, even though Donald Trump was the one that moved the embassy to Jerusalem. They have little communities named after him, but still 68% of the Jewish vote, as I recall, Luke, or maybe it was a little higher, still went to Joe Biden. So he doesn't need to shore that up by, by any means. Now, it could be an attempt to, you know, cut into the evangelical vote, but they're not going to vote for him. So I think it was political and he likes to brag that he was the first U.S. president to go into a war zone. That's not true. Franklin Roosevelt was. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt went to North Africa shortly after U.S. troops landed in 1942. And uh, there's a famous picture of him in the back of a Jeep. So, I mean, he even lied about that. Uh, But uh, so, uh, and then he couldn't get uh, uh, a boss, wouldn't take his phone call. Uh, Al-Sisi just promptly canceled through his foreign minister. And I remember somebody kept him waiting eight hours. Uh, I can't remember who that was. And then, of course, the king of Jordan, uh, the king of Saudi Arabia and Qatar. That that was Blinken, not Biden. Oh, okay, Blinken. Okay, well, I mean, this this is all rather uh, bizarre. It's almost uh, as if... uh, you know, Joe Biden saying one thing um, and uh, well, you're uh, missing the, actually the other effect. I think you're missing the, the reality of how close expulsion was to happen and still might be. And uh, Biden was going one thing to show unequivocal support for Israel. You know, Israel's uh, you, you know, U.S. has Israel's back. And Biden probably feels like that, you know, despite his democratic value, like, you know, he would be a military warrior on behalf of Israel, the funding Biden, you know, unabashedly just requested $16 billion more in weapons. And at the time when he went, he was supposed to have the meeting of Egypt and Jordan 
and it might have also been the UAE, but the other nation was less uh, instrumental in uh, in the meeting. And, and it was supposed to be about the humanitarian corridor that uh, you know, Biden was basically saying, like, look, Hamas attacked. Israel has a right to defend themselves, go in and destroy Hamas. And what they need to do is cooperate in creating the humanitarian corridor. And Biden was supposed to negotiate with Egypt to make that humanitarian corridor in the Sinai Peninsula. And then the hospital bombing happened and Jordan and Egypt, um, you'll probably saw that, uh, you're like, no, the U.S. was going to be complicit in war crimes. And, uh, but I think you're missing how close this uh, forced expulsion was. And well, let's, let's talk about that for a little bit. I mean, you agree that, that you Biden, know Biden went there to create a humanitarian corridor and he went to pressure Egypt to make that humanitarian corridor in the Sinai Peninsula. I think that was part of the meeting was supposed to be between Biden and he was going to meet with uh, al-Sisi in Egypt and King Abdullah in Jordan and a boss of the Palestinian Authority. OK, uh, al-Sisi and, and King Abdullah promptly quit. They gave an excuse that there has to be three days of mourning. OK, let's take that. Uh, but why would he even meet with a boss? A boss's party is not in charge of Gaza. The, you know, the uh, uh, I can't remember the name of his party right offhand. But, you know, the Palestinians uh, are not a monolith by, by any means. They have their different versions. And a boss is like 90 years old. I mean, he's probably as effective today as Paul von Hindenburg was effective in 1933 in Germany. I yeah, mean, Fatah, just, Fatah, I, his party is named Fatah, Fatah yeah, Fatah. and he is 87, yeah. I believe. Okay, so uh, again, it, it, none of it made any sense other than, keep in mind, Joe Biden himself is facing, I keep calling it the, the Paul von Hindenburg look. Joe Biden's facing that too, and this could have been an attempt also politically to show, oh, he's a wartime president. He's flying into war zones. Look how sexy Joe Biden is. He'll come up and sniff your hair if you don't believe us. I mean, it, it was all rather bizarre because nothing was accomplished. Nothing has been accomplished. And then, of course, after Joe Biden did it, then Gavin Newsom had to say that he was going to. Well, we know what that's all about. That's just being an attention, and you can fill in the second word. Well, a lot of uh, it's just, I mean, what are you talking about? Like Biden, Blinken and Biden both sat in the Israeli war meeting. They both uh, did whatever power they could without the Congress to replenish weapons. And they got Biden to come home and make a speech to America requesting $16 billion in funds. I mean, so the, the perspective is like, you're, I mean, because the narrative of like, you know, Biden being anti-Israel um, is saying like, no, I mean, Biden is oh i didn't say biden was anti-israel i'm saying like well, of course there was an accomplishment biden unequivocally backed israel he sent um well, of he course sent, he sent the the naval fleets into the mediterranean he publicly basically warned uh the other nations that if you jump in this america will will go to war for the half of israel so i'm saying i don't know what you're talking about and biden wanted to bully um the arab nations and that's like so they backed out biden they, can't bully anybody well, I mean, Let's yes, talk about the deployment I mean, of the fleet. The, the USS Eisenhower was already scheduled to be there. Biden as the person, but Biden as the commander in chief of the U.S. Army, Biden was there to bully Egypt and Jordan, and and I'm claiming that he was there. Like the real intention was to bully 
I mean, it's even stated explicitly was the creation of the humanitarian corridor into the Sinai Peninsula. And so you're just looking at Biden as the weak leader, which he might be, but he's still commander in chief. Okay, okay, David, David, we got the point. It's it's clear. Uh, Rand, uh, Rodney, please, please respond. Okay, when was the last time, Luke? I mean, I, I think I have the correct answer. You can Google it. But when was the last time there was a mass so-called expulsion? It was the partition of India and Pakistan. That was the last time in history there has been would be this significant of an expulsion for people when actually, you know, the Indians that, you know, were not going to pair well in Pakistan and vice versa. There was this huge transfer of population. And we see the few Muslim Pakistani, you know, the Muslims became Pakistan and the Hindu. And we see how well those that didn't leave, you know, the Muslims that didn't leave, families didn't leave in 1948, 40, whenever that was. Uh, are faring today in India. But that was the last time. And it didn't look, it was not a good look. Uh, times have changed. I don't know, you know, I, I agree. I'm sure there are many people, even people on the Israeli left that would love to see that happen. But the reality of that happen, it's just not, I mean, if you think the college campuses are blowing up now uh, to actually forcibly engage in such a tactic, which is it's, it's a war crime. It's ethnic cleansing. It's everything. I don't, you know, and then you got to think also, again, I go back to cooler heads. Uh, Israel already deals with that apartheid label being stuck to them all the time, even by people. Uh, yeah, is Egypt expelled population in the 1950s. That's about the same time, but not on this scale, not on the scale of the Pakistani uh, uh, and India uh, partition and not on this scale. I mean, Israel would have no choice. If they expel the two or three million that are in Gaza, they would have to do in the West Bank as well. There's more, I think, isn't there more Palestinians in the West Bank? And that is a much greater danger. You have that many people and you get them all ticked off over there. And you know, the West Bank has actually been relatively quiet during all of this. If you want to get them riled up and have them flog into Jerusalem, which they have the numbers to do it, just start ethnically cleansing, cleansing Gaza. So again, I think there are people that would like to do it. I think the idea has even been floated, but I think again, cooler heads say, we can't get away with that. Now, another option could be uh, for Israel to do with the Palestinians, what the United States did to the Native Americans, to the Indians and create reservations. But it seems like they've kind of tried some sort of version of that Gaza now, and it's not working. Uh, you know, keep in mind that Indians didn't have a citizenship when the reservations were first created. That came later as a Supreme Court ruling. In fact, they got uh, voting rights and citizen, you know, full voting rights before even women. So it's oh, a that, mess. That, that makes and, sense. Like said, go... <laughs> uh, yeah. But here's a, here's a new direction for the conversation. The current situation, Luke, is the, the current, uh, current situation has been going on for 50 plus years, as hot as it is. It can't continue. At some point, this is going to have to be used as a way to fundamentally change it and fix it. Or they're just going to be wiping each other out. And I don't know how many much how much stomach either side is well, going to have for this much. Longer. Yeah, I mean, the, the war is going to go on until one side wipes out the, the other or, or drives the other out. So which either side, when you get a winner, it will be the, the winner will, will drive out or decimate the loser. But the, the big winner in all of this, it seems to me, obviously, is Russia. Uh, America is not going to be able to sustain the same kind of aid to Ukraine. Ukraine's getting virtually no attention in the news media. 
What do you think about that angle, Rodney? Well, what's fascinating is I don't know how much, you know, there was an article in Stars and Stripes, and I still read that. Uh, and this was probably six months ago, maybe less, where, you know, in between these congressional appropriations, the United States had been really digging into its own reserves in terms of stockpiles that it's supposed to have in case it has to in case of another 9-11 or something like that. I don't know how much we could give, you know, without really depleting our ability to do something. And of course, we've already let five million plus people in from other countries along the border. So what happens if those people actually start just going to the, you know, go into a gun show and buying guns and start doing stuff. But you're right. Um, also, following up that Stars and Stripes article, there was an article out this week that the United Department, Department of Defense has been leaning on, on arms uh, manufacturers to kind of hurry up and get stuff uh, uh, done. And, of course, they have supply chain issues and manpower issues uh, as well. So I don't know how much we could give either side, but certainly we're not going to be able to, you know, be the – and I, by the way, before Biden's speech – I was talking to my son and I said, I bet you 20 bucks that tonight he mentions the arsenal of democracy and echoes Roosevelt, because that was Roosevelt's position in, in, in selling the Lend-Lease to supply uh, without going to war, but to supply Britain. And sure enough, Biden said it. But, I, you know, we're not the same country because, you know, we're just not that we were back in 1939 and 1940. Uh, but uh, I, certainly uh, if he's going to have to pick one. Uh, Israel would be the logical one. It's a different type of a different type of war. They're not fighting, uh, uh, you know, a behemoth modern army. Uh, so that would be the likelihood. And I don't think Congress is going to allow uh, him to bootstrap funds for Ukraine. And by the way, that speech, you know, Duva talked about. He gave a primetime speech. If you count the actual sentences. He opened up stoking the fears about Israel, but almost probably, Luke, 80% of that speech was about Ukraine, 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 Ukraine. He's trying to bootstrap Ukraine onto Israel. And at some point, Congress is going, when they get a speaker, keep in mind, there can't be any bills done until there's a speaker. Uh, I hope there isn't a speaker for a long time because the American people are far better off when that thing's not working because Congress and Biden only work for other countries. They don't work for our people anymore. But Anyway, make a long story short, they're going to have to pick. Biden's going to have to pick Ukraine uh, or Israel, and uh, he's going to pick Israel. And this hasn't gotten much media attention, but it, it moved me. As, as Biden was leaving Israel, he sang this beautiful song, I can't forget this evening or your face as you are leaving, but I guess that's just the way the story goes. He, he said to Bibi, I can't live if living is without you. I can't live. I can't give anymore. Well, th there are limits to how much America can, can give. And America shifted a whole lot of munitions from Israel to Ukraine. And that can't continue. Uh, America can't fulfill both Israel and Ukraine's need for munitions. And if I were China, this would be the time that I would invade Taiwan. I mean, well, America sure. is I so mean, overmatched. It, it, it Go ahead. Yeah. I, uh, I had long said, Luke, that if China takes Taiwan, the United States will do absolutely nothing because China has nukes. And let me tell you, the United States won't do uh, uh, anything 
American public, both sides won't do anything. If, just think of the economic devastation of a nuke. Just say country A, doesn't matter if it's China, it could be Pakistan. They have nukes and they're not very stable these days. If anybody were to land one nuke, say in a major city in the United States, think about the economic or anywhere for that matter, what it would do. It would literally almost fold our tent. If you think the COVID shutdowns destroy the economy, just the mere possibility of, of a nuke hitting uh, someplace in the United States, especially a major city, um, that's it. There's no guns ready. And then I also remember Israel getting criticized and bullied, as Dubit talked about, by the United States to send arms and supplies to Ukraine. It did not. It kind of stayed out of that. Uh, and I think Israel's better off for that because had they sent, you know, they had they stripped their stockpiles and sent tanks and aircraft and munitions to Ukraine, uh, you know, we're, people are already complaining. Why haven't they invaded? It's been, what, 10 days. Why haven't they invaded Gaza? Why haven't they invaded Gaza? And I hear that predominantly among evangelicals and, and kosher conservatives. Think about it. They're, they wouldn't be able to do anything uh, if, they'd, if they'd have made the commitments to Ukraine that the United States wanted them to. Uh, David, anything you want to jump in with? Yeah, um, I mean, if you want to talk about uh, frame games, conspiracy theories, also uh, that might be interesting. But you know, like, to close the chapter on Israel, like you know, people are judging Israel based maybe on the American Jews they know versus uh, you know, what the Israeli Americans are actually saying. Um, you know, like uh, you know, people are in disbelief about uh, you know the neo kahanist uh, Smadrik and Ben Gavir. And say like no, I mean that attitude is pretty common there. And even like Likud, and uh, they already have mobilized three hundred thousand troops. They're outside Gaza, just waiting for the call. They already have uh, the IDF conducting raids, basically lockdown on the West Bank. Israel is basically mobilized the whole country for an all-out war against whoever might join in. And uh, you know, thinking like the protest or the public pressure. Um, you know, like Vietnam, I, I mean, it was before my time, but I understand there was like over a million people protesting in Washington, D.C., like the protests against Vietnam were way bigger than this Palestine stuff. And it lasted uh, years, uh, like the, you know, Democratic Convention of the 60s or whatever that was. But, uh, you know, just saying, like, look at the protest and the public pressure, consider uh, what happened during Vietnam and the U.S. continued with the war despite all the public pressure. And there's way more interest in Israel than there was in Vietnam. And then, you know, God forbid, the last point would be the sustained violence on the Jewish community. Like, I mean, God forbid my friend Sam Wool, if she was killed related to this war, that Israel could conduct the war, the U.S. elites could continue to support the war, the Jewish community elites could continue to support the war, and there will be also a high level of casualties and displacement to the Jewish community in um, America because, uh, you know, these protests will continue to grow. Uh, the Palestinians will see that the main reason Israel is able to do this is the support of the U.S. government. They're not going to be able to convince the U.S. government not to do it, and therefore they're going to attack the Jewish community. So if there is a sustained war of months, um, the Jewish community should be ready for a sustained um, violence against us. Uh, Rodney, are China's interests or Iran's interests advanced by this conflict in between Israel and Hamas? 
political. I don't know where Ch China. China's interest. China is advanced by the fact that. Hang on, David. They, hang on, they, David. Let Rodney go. Go, Rodney. They know exactly what you just said, Luke. That the United States is committing is wants to commit now to fund and basically. Well, they're not just funding the wars and on on two different wars, but keep in mind, we're also paying for all of the civil administration, governmental administration, retirement benefits of Ukraine. Ukraine is the de facto a, a U.S. you know protectorate. And so we're, we're not just funding their military, we're funding everything. Uh, so, uh, and then if we would do this with Israel, uh, you know, uh, Xi Jinping can just walk across uh, the, uh, you know, the Taiwan Straits and just take Taiwan and there won't be anything we can do about it, nor do I think even if we weren't doing this, we would do anything. I know Biden made the statement that if China invaded Taiwan, he would go to war with China. That isn't going to happen, and it definitely can. So from that point, Iran, now what's been interesting is Biden, uh, this is another thing, talk about the hypocrisy. Um, uh, the uh, uh, Fox News conservatives and neocons have also have been trying to link Iran to this. So let's go ahead and take out the Palestinians. Let's take out Iran. Uh, let's uh, refreeze. You know, we made a deal for this six billion bucks. Uh, There's actually their money anyway. It wasn't taxpayers' money. And uh, let's re uh, let's refreeze that and let's take out Iran and Biden, you know, uh, Biden has said that they've not. And so is the intel community has said that they don't see any, you know, connect the dots, you know, between Iran guiding this uh, or having any say in this. And I tend to believe that because it's just not that's not in Iran's interest. Uh, and uh, it, it's interesting that the. Uh, uh, the intel community, for some respects, are are considered corrupt and uh, non real, uh, you know, not reliable by uh, by these Fox News and neocon conservatives. But in some respects, if it involves Iran, well, yes, yes, they are. We have to go by uh, we we have to go by uh, what what they say. It, it's a mess. I Iran's uh, interest is is clearly you know uh, political it is sought to be the leader of the islamic world and uh you know uh, it routinely you know it's just part of its propaganda death to america the end of the zionist regime and all of that but i don't you know iran has been very calculating uh their you know their their air force is you know 1970s planes they really they're they're not a military powerhouse per se where they have excelled is is training and arming you know guerrilla fighters like you know they were instrumental Suleimani even though we killed him which was stupid was instrumental in defeating ISIS he actually made an effective Iraqi fighting force uh, something that the United States couldn't do in either Iraq or Afghanistan trained them armed them and uh, you know stopped the advance of ISIS on Baghdad and then drove them out of the out of the country a lot of that was Suleimani and the Iranians they've learned to do that very very well. And yes, do they fund and send arms to uh, Hamas uh, and Hezbollah? Hezbollah definitely yes, and I think Hamas has been filtering it uh, out of out of Hezbollah. But uh, I uh, there was a couple of articles out of the Middle East and out of Europe that said that their intel sources had said that the uh, the Ayatollah was actually caught off guard, was surprised by the action. That was kind of codified because the the heads of Hamas all live in Qatar, 
Qatar was the one that got the first hostages released, by the way, had said that they've been planning this for two years, 24 months, which is about right to, to plan this type of, you know, uh, an invasion by a guerrilla army into, you know, an advanced first world state with a modern army. And that they could, he said he could count on one hand, five fingers, how many people were actually in the know, and they were all Hamas, and they weren't even necessarily all of the Hamas's political uh, leadership, which is interesting to note. Both Hezbollah and Hamas has a political leadership, and they have a military wing, and those oftentimes those hands don't know what the other two, what the other one's doing. And uh, did you follow the news about Frame Game Radio being unmasked as Mike Mike Benz? No, I didn't know that. Oh, do you remember the Frame Game Radio character? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the one that said he. he then he disappeared out of the yeah. blue, right? Yeah, yeah. How was well, he unmasked? Well, he's a conservative crusader against online censorship, so he hit his face in 2017, 2018. But he set up this uh, foundation for internet freedom, and his real name is uh, Mike Benz. And uh, he's got a lot of very influential uh, followers, and uh, he's got an organization for internet freedom. He's uh, connected to Representative Jim Jordan, uh, connect, seems to have some kind of connection to Elon Musk. Uh, so interesting trajectory that he's, he's been on. He was the lawyer, right? Yes. Well, it turns out he's not a lawyer. Wait, wait, where do you no, see he's I not said a lawyer? That, if you remember Luke. Go ahead. I, I don't think he's actually a lawyer. I'm not sure if you looked at his uh, profile, but I think that actually he wasn't honest about it. He's not actually a lawyer. Okay, uh, Rodney. Yeah, I, I called that up. I, I remember Luke on your show. I said I didn't think he was an actual lawyer because some of his, uh, it, shall we say, interpretations were grossly uh, in conflict with actual case law, but th that doesn't matter. It's interesting. I've never heard of this guy, Benz. I just remember okay. that he disappeared. So here's the news article. So winter 2018, he took a job as an assistant secretary for public affairs at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. He was writing speeches for Secretary Ben Carson. He left in 2020. He went to the Department of State, where he held the position of deputy assistant secretary for international communications, information technology for less than a year. He has a background in law, and he did a short stint in government. He became a cyber expert, offered his opinion to a new group of lawmakers, activists, and journalists fighting against what they deem the censorship industrial complex. In April 2022, he started the Foundation for Freedom Online, and he has gotten connected with a bunch of people like Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, uh, Elon Musk, uh, and uh, he's been widely cited. So he's uh, he's quite made something of himself since he was the Frame Game Radio personality. Well, how did he, was he was he outed, or did he admit that's who he was? I'm kind of curious. Yeah, he was outed. He was essentially outed by Richard Spencer in 2018, uh, it turns out, but no one really paid that much of attention. And then I guess a lot of people in the know, I guess Ricardo knew, but uh, he just became publicly outed in uh, a month ago by NBC News, by Brandy Zadrozny. And uh, Colin Liddell says, Frame Games was unmasked by Richard Spencer in some kind of deal. I, I don't know if that's true, but uh, Richard did unmask and dox Frame Game back in 2018. But it, that didn't seem to uh, be widely known until 
NBC News published this expose. Why would Spencer dock somebody like that? They, you know, I, I don't know. Oh, that's right. Spencer became a liberal after all. Never mind. Thanks. Right. So anyway, <laughs> um, uh, Mike Benz now explains that what he was doing is frame game radio as he was trying to de-radicalize people on the alt-right. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Which seems like a, uh, a post facto justification. But uh, anyway. An investigative uh, journalist contacted me on Friday about frame games, and we spoke for like two hours. Okay. What was the what was some of the highlights of that conversation? Um, she knew very little about the alt-right. So she has this huge conspiracy theory that frame games is behind the Twitter files leak and behind ban the ADL and doing illegal activity and is some sort of mastermind in current possibly illegal activity. If you notice, like he was behind, I guess, uh, Schellenberger for whatever at one of these uh, uh, congressional hearings, he was right behind him. And she claims he was like feeding him what to say, convincing him to lie to uh, Congress. And she thinks that he was involved with Elon Musk from the beginning of Twitter and the coordinated attack against ban the ADL was masterminded by frame games. So like when the docs came out, she was already doing investigative journalism on Ben's. And when the docs came out, so I had done this tweet that she found in 2018 claiming that frame games is Q. And like, I didn't know anything about him. I mean, if he was actually in the Trump administration or had some sort of connections or was some sort of, you know, Rodney CIA, uh, you know, a PSYOP or something like that. Um, retired, retired. But I mean, she was not necessarily so concerned uh, with, you know, what he did as frame games or what he said. Um, but she was, she thinks that he's currently a criminal that needs to be stopped and is this big mastermind in stuff that's going on in Twitter, in Congress, um, right now so like she was very interested in the history and i gave her like all history lesson of like internet blood sports and the alt-right and you know she also said frame games is half italian half jewish and uh, they've even like looked into his parents and questioned his parents about his jewish upbringing some people think he might have lied completely about being jewish and he still might be lying about being jewish uh and the question is was it all like a coordinated strategy back from frame games where he was building the network uh, to take down the ADL or certain elements in the censorship Biden administration. And uh, you know, basically did that as a PSYOP to build the network. And then when Elon Musk took over the network, he used his connections that he had built up then as some sort of coordinated effort to take down uh, you know, the uh, powerful forces in the State Department through Twitter files and then eventually uh, ban the ADL until today. So if you look at this woman, Kristen Ruby, and I actually told her, like, you got to speak to Luke Ford. Like, if you want, like, I told her, uh -oh. I didn't, like, dox anybody, but I was like, yeah, I told her how I spoke to him and the information. Like, I thought in my views that he was kind of like a racist Jew, uh, typical of kind of like alt-writers and, you know, questions about funding and Halsey's funding. Was there a conspiracy? And uh, I said, if you want, you know, like, if you want more information, you got to ask Luke Ford. And I was trying to understand her conspiracy theories. But the interesting part I thought was, you know, say, like, you know, we're not just talking about a dox of somebody, uh, you know, years ago that uh, said questionable things, uh, that it may have actually been a psyop, and he might actually be, uh, you know, at the center of uh, some sort of 
a major conspiracy involving uh, you know serious political actors, uh, billionaires, powerful people. Okay. Did he ever even identify as Jewish, Luke? I don't remember yes. that. Yeah, I, he did. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I couldn't even remember that. You, you know, this 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 investigative journalist, all these conspiracy. It sounds like to me she's just trying to do a hit job where she throws the proverbial a whole bunch of poo against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, ahead, I don't David. know so much about, like, say, the Twitter files or ban the ADL. And I mean, you, I don't know. We talked a little bit about ban the ADL, but to say that you could ban the ADL have been astroturfing. And we know frame games, like even Luke, you have on your channel, frame games on your channel bashing the ADL, saying that they're basically a criminal cabal. And that uh, you know, Frame Games could have been the mastermind working for Elon Musk to take down um, the ADL. And I said that, that that's plausible. And I don't know. I mean, she's looking at it as a criminal conspiracy. And I said, like, well, I don't I mean, necessarily know if he committed any Where's crime. the crime? Where's the crime? Well, and that's what she's I'm saying. To... Well, I mean, the crime would have been that that uh, she that he uh, fed false information to like Schoenberger or these other people to lie before Congress. Um, okay. But. Uh, I think that's is enough. It, is it okay. possible? It, it sounds like it sounds you... like they're trying to do another Douglas Mackey is what they're trying to do. Would you speak to this journalist, Luke? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Um, and do you think it's possible that Frame Games, uh, you know, Mike Menz is a serious player and was involved in, uh, you know, like a, a, a senior advisor to Elon Musk and maybe is the one who told Elon Musk, uh, uh, you, you know, to go with the band, the L- ADL, and said, we could beat these guys, we could take them down? Or even the yeah, Twitter yeah, loop. I think that's possible that uh, he's a serious player and that he might have, you know, influence with people like Elon Musk. Yeah, I, I think that's possible. But that he was the advisor behind the Twitter files and banned the ADL. I, I think it's possible that he'd be he'd be one of them. I, I don't think that he's. Can the I uh, can I offer a yeah, dissenting opinion on one of those? I yeah. think the Twitter files was 100% Elon Musk. I don't think he needed any advice or influence. I, I think that, remember, he was having feuds with Twitter before, you know, he, there was ever an intent, before he even bought, you know, their initial interest in it where he was offered a board seat. I think the Twitter files, once he became in control of the company and had access to all the inside, I think that was 100% Elon Musk. Now, as far as ban the e, uh, ADL, I never, t- I don't take that type of stuff serious because you can no more ban the ADL as you can ban CPAC or any other uh, organization. As much as we proficiously disagree with them or whatever, or I do, I would never dream, I just don't take those things serious. Uh, where's the harm? Where's the crime? There's not. I mean, so he created something, a hashtag that went viral. Whoopie doo. Nobody took it serious. It's not going to get banned. No, I'm okay. not, I, well, first, I argued with her and I said, I don't think he was criminal. I mean, he might have poor character or abused people, been like a social climber, narcissist, sociopath. That's all possible and likely, but I don't necessarily know he committed a crime. And to some extent, I might actually back him what he did. But to say, yeah, Elon Musk bought Twitter. He had the open to the document. He opened them up. But to say what got leaked, how it got leaked and what was the goal of it and combined with ban the ADL, like Frame Games told Luke five years ago, the ADL is a criminal mafia enterprise that is combined with Jewish organizations and the FBI and deep state forces. And to say Elon Musk didn't know about it, he just, I mean, it's very unlikely Elon Musk masterminded that, but whether um, 
Mike okay. okay. I, I think we've done this particular topic to death on Frame Game and this woman's conspiracy. But, uh, uh, Rodney, let's get back to the Middle East. What do you think the chances are that Hezbollah sends most of its rockets into Israel? Um, if they don't do so within 24 to 48 hours of a ground incursion that is... I, uh, uh, an IDF ground incursion into uh, uh, Gaza. I say they're going to sit it out or may just harass. Right now, all they've done is exchange artillery fire and stuff. But the more interesting thing that makes me think it's highly likely is Hamas fighters have been captured up on the northern border uh, and uh, it's straight and engaging with uh, IDF forces up there uh, as well. So I think that... Uh, there's two reasons why there hasn't been a ground incursion. Well, three. One, they needed to they needed to basically call up the reservists and prepare uh, uh, for such an event if they pulled the trigger. I mean, we heard three days ago, Luke, that the, the operation had been green-lighted. Well, if it's been green-lighted, usually it happens within 24 hours, but then we ran into the Sabbath. So uh, then uh, the next thing is... Uh, the Israeli military, and I'm talking about not the defense uh, uh, minister, but I'm talking about generals, ones that have, you know, actually had fought, say, Hamas before, especially the last outing when they tried to take down Hezbollah. And remember, if you go back and Google the last major uh, entanglement Israel had with uh, Hezbollah, it was not a decisive win by any means for the IDF. They had to learn from it. In fact, I think a couple of politicians in Israel lost their jobs over it. But be that as it may, I think that it's highly likely um, simply because, you know, going back to Iran, there's no doubt that at least Hezbollah gets intel, uh, you know, from Iran. And they've been dealing with this Israel thing, Hezbollah and Hamas and such together, that uh, they understand it would be a logistical issue, a troop, uh, uh, a deployment of troops and resources issue. And they also know the United States is not going to commit ground forces, uh, not after the catastrophe of Afghanistan uh, and Iraq. There's just no stomach uh, for that. Uh, uh, so, Rodney, uh, I, I think it has to happen within two days, 48 hours. Uh, Rodney, most important question I should have asked you, may not have ever asked you this, but there's a highly organized, highly funded campaign to egg the United States into war with Iran. Do you agree with me? And how do you understand that cabal? Well, that goes back to PNAC, the project for a new American century. You know, that, that I think, I, I think they uh, took their stuff down, but for a long time, their, their goals, and those were made up of Democrats and Republicans. The thing they shared in common was they were all neocons, and closely tied to defense contractors. So, uh, but that goes back to, we were gonna spread democracy and we're gonna take out all the hostile regime. And what's funny is the sentence that read, as I recall, we're going to remove all the hostile regimes to Israel and the United States as if we have, you know, the, our interests are 100% in alignment, which they're not, or they shouldn't be. But uh, anyway, yes, there has been for quite some time uh, probably going back to 1979, uh, Luke, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, vested interest uh, uh, in Iran in terms of natural resources that were all lost. It was a key 
It was a key uh, uh, ally under the Shah on the on the uh, Soviet border, which doesn't exist anymore. And genuinely, there was a lot of what I call now generational hurt feelings. It went from one generation to another of neocons, and in some cases, it, within the neocon family. Uh, family. So yeah, there is. It's stupid. Uh, it, it's stupid. We have Iran poses no serious threat. Uh, to the United States, for the most part, if you really to dig into Iran and peel the onion, go beyond the organized protests and stuff, they really just want to be left alone and build their economy and get those sanctions off their back. That's why they keep, you know, toying around with this nuclear weapons, despite the fact that the Ayatollah has a fatwa against developing nuclear weapons. They want to open their economy up and, and grow the economy. And... Uh, but uh, again, you have this highly, just like you have this highly organized and highly funded, shall we say, I call it APAC lobby that thinks that, you know, it, you know, if Israel trips and falls, we have to pick them up and we're responsible for it. I mean, we've heard, like I said, I go back to Nikki Haley saying America was attacked just as much as Israel was. How stupid is that statement? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that is that is. Uh... Absolutely absurd. Now, a, a lot of there's also a lot of news media coverage that tries to portray Hamas as a proxy for Iran. And I think that's absurd. Hamas, first of all, is Sunni. It may have received some financial support and weapons and maybe some training from Iran, but it's far from a proxy for Iran. It seems quite capable of being an independent actor on its own. I don't believe that Hamas takes orders from Tehran. Your thoughts, Rodney? Uh, Hamas doesn't take orders from Tehran, despite if whatever they receive in terms of support via Hezbollah, any more than the North Vietnamese was a puppet for the Soviet Union or China. They fought their own war. They took material help if they could get it from both of those superpower, you know, super states. But for the most part, they're fighting. They're, they have their own agenda. They're going to carry that out regardless of who helps them or who doesn't help them. Uh, if you want to, you know, put both, you know, put it down. Uh, there's a lot of parallels between the Palestinian situation in Israel and the Viet, uh, you know, Vietnam situation. In Vietnam, we portrayed it as the West versus communism, when in fact it was nationalism on the part. Ho Chi Minh was a nationalist before he was, you know, a communist, much like Castro was. We totally blew that. And then the same thing in the Palestinians, they want self-sufficiency. So we call them terrorists while we call the North Vietnamese communists. We used these derogatory terms to gin people up when, in fact, it boils down to nationalism and self-determination. That's why I say the solution is a state. You may not like that state, but you can take, you know, let the Palestinians have a state. Let Israel rebuild their border wall properly and, and then they can control the, you know, coast. But let them let them have their thing. Let them have a chance to succeed or fail. Um uh, Israel is in no danger of being conquered, per se, by the Palestinians. Uh, they do are in danger of being, you know, shall we say, severely wounded, or they may have, you know, the old, uh, what's the old adage? Uh, it's a, uh, a pirate victory. Mm -hmm. You know, Pyrrhic, you can win the Pyrrhic, war, but it hurts Pyrrhic you. Victory. Pyrrhic, Pyrrhic victory. Yeah. Anyway, um, can't talk this morning. Anyway, uh, they can have a situation where, they, yeah, they'll win the war, but it will so wound them that it will be generations to recover.
Yeah. Okay, uh, Rodney, do you have any final words for today? No, just ho let's hold our breath and pray, Luke, you know, and blessings ever. I mean, uh, what's been horrific on both sides is seeing these dead children. Uh, I can tell you firsthand experience that has a devastating effect on the population, on the psyche. War just, you know, nobody pays a higher price of war than, than, than the innocents and the civilians. And that's why I used to, you know, really chew up on your show a lot of these, you know, crazies that wanted a civil war. They have no clue what they're asking for. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Rodney. Great to talk to you. Okay. Take care, okay. man. Take care, Luke. Uh, David, anything okay. that we've been talking about that you want to jump in on? Yeah, I just put in the chat, like, if you remember the 1983 movie War Games with Matthew Broderick. Yeah. Where you basically all scenarios lead to thermonuclear war, destruction of humanity. Um, so war is largely, you know, like I'm a chess player, but war is sometimes closer to poker. It's mostly about bluffing. So you could look at the scenarios and, you know, it's going to be like war games. All scenarios lead to thermonuclear destruction. And it has to be a question of calling each other's sides bluffs and saying like, and, and also, uh, you know, how willing people are to sacrifice their lives or act in a certain way, like Russia, Ukraine, the Ukraine counteroffensive. If Ukraine had been willing to just rush 20,000 troops, 50,000 troops and break a line, um, maybe they could have got all the way to uh, Crimea. Uh, but they weren't willing to do that. Like, you know, it would have cost tens of thousands of lives in one shot, which uh, who knows if even that's capable. So analyzing the war is you could analyze all these various scenarios and see what's happening. And, uh, you know, it's going to come. All of them are going to lead to uh, thermonuclear destruction if uh, all the bluffs are called. Uh, but, you know, a lot of times bluff, bluffs work and people are scared of death and they uh you know, defeating your enemy is not usually worth it. You, you know, like uh, the Chafetz Chaim Torah, walk away from a dispute, the world west on your shoulders when you, uh, you know, take the hit and walk away from dispute. Um, so it's pretty scary. You know, like we're probably closest to uh, Third World War than we've ever been. The forces are aligning. Um, there's one other point that you know, like uh, you could see like as an axis aligning is the uh, Belt Road Initiative of China with uh, you know going through uh uh iran turkey russia to europe as opposed to biden at the india summit that most people think was just fantasy there's no way it could happen but the alternative that would go india through saudi arabia uae jordan into israel and that's partially also uh you know these geo forces axes and allies aligning for uh you know world war three so uh it's pretty scary. You know, I think I, I, maybe, I mean, if you want to wrap it up, you can. I thought maybe another interesting point was to revisit Kevin McDonald, considering like Nathan Kaufness and his like constant arguments that like, that say like Jews are not, you know, super uh, uh, ethnocentric because Jews uh, outmarry. And here you have like in the last few weeks, Nathan Kaufness has basically become like a Hasbro uh, bot. He's retweeting like Netanyahu, Israeli war propaganda, defending the, you know, but, but at the same time, he married a non-Jewish woman. He has no involvement in, you know, he was just on your show with Lipton Matthews saying how, how un-Jewish he is, how like he doesn't even care about Judaism. But yet here all of a sudden, 
Um, you know, he's basically an Israeli war propagandist. And I had that argument with Elliot Blatt, like Elliot Blatt's only like a half Jew from his father, no connection to Judaism. I spoke to Elliot Blatt. He said never once in his life has he ever been in a setting where it was all Jews, where he was in a circle of all Jewish friends. And yet he's basically, you know, like, I mean, if you want to use the uh, hyperbole, like he's turned into a genocidal maniac. And, uh, and so I don't know if you've thought about that and, and you know, like Lucas Gage, a lot of the alt-right people, it's like, oh, these like fine American citizens. And then all of a sudden the war happens and these normal Jewish Americans turn into these genocidal maniacs. And I don't know if you've well, thought I about mean, that. I, I just, yeah, I reviewed Nathan Koffness's timeline before the show started and there's nothing in it that you could call genocidal or maniac. It's the same, you know, careful, thoughtful, writing that one would expect from Nathan Koffner. So he's still very much in his uh, analytical mode. There's not some, you know, outpouring of emotion. Well, that's not what I said. I said regarding Elliot and saying, yeah. like, well, yeah, we should probably could expel him or kill him. And, you know, I mean, I, I didn't say that, Nathan, but I was saying he is basically using his um, platform to be an Israeli propagandist. I mean, he's doing it in his thoughtful, intellectual manner but if his claim was like okay like he married a korean woman he doesn't even care about judaism he doesn't practice the religion why does he care why is he so involved why is he risking his platform to take a side in this well, I, mean, I think it, he's, it's actually related to his arguments with kmac and saying it's contradicting his whole thing uh, about uh, about the proof that jews are not highly ethnocentric because they uh outmarry at such high rates. And Lipton Matthews said like he didn't think he didn't buy that. He didn't think that uh, marrying people from a different race necessarily had an influence. And so, you know, if you're looking at that debate you hosted between Lipton Matthews and Nathan Kaufness, um, is Nathan Kaufness contradicting himself by being yeah, involved? I, I, I yeah, I don't, don't think so. I mean, millions of non-Jews are just as outraged by the Hamas massacre of Israeli civilians. Uh, and millions of non-Jews have, you know, similar types of criticisms to what uh, Nathan Koffness has posted on his timeline. But there was one thing I wanted to talk about, this uh, woman, Samantha Wall, and the Washington Post headline is, President of Detroit Synagogue Found Stabbed to Death Outside Home. And I, I think many non-Jews don't realize this, but uh, President of Synagogue is a very insignificant position. Uh, the secretary at a synagogue in all likelihood, has more power and influence over how the synagogue operates than president of a synagogue. It's very rare that president of a synagogue really means anything significant. And out of you know everything that this woman has accomplished in her life, being president of this particular synagogue, I doubt would even rank in the top 10. Any thoughts on that, David? Well, no, I, I would disagree in the sense that president of the synagogue is usually one of the most powerful people in the Jewish community, not necessarily rabbi or religious in the sense like she probably was the single most politically connected, um, financially connect connected person in the community. And like, she wasn't the rabbi. She didn't lead like the, as a pastor, uh, and even think, okay, like my local young Israel or any place, usually the president is either very wealthy and one of the biggest donors or you're somehow very connected and saying like, if, if it was the rabbi, I, I would say even opposite that God forbid, if it was the rabbi, this happened to, there would be less media attention. And the media attention was because 
she was, uh, you know, she was a, a leader in the Democratic Party. And then it also goes to liberal Judaism, where, where most liberal Jewish congregations are more about democratic political organization than actually Judaism. So you could look like, okay, the rabbi and the religious stuff, that's not really what the Jews cared about that much. They cared about the political organization. And this woman, God forbid that, you know, you know Samantha, who was president, she was the most senior ranking person in the Democratic Party in, in, uh, in the Jewish community in Detroit. Okay. Um, thanks, uh, David. Any any final words for today? Yeah. God forbid. Uh, you know, I'd like Samantha Wool. Like I, you know, like I might have even like romantically pursued her, but uh, you, you know, she was like a feminist and liberal. Like I was friends with her. We prayed together, and uh, you, you know, she was uh, intelligent, attractive, uh, you know, well-to-do. Came from a good family, um, and. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what would have happened, but I never, you know, even thought to romantically pursue her because she was like a feminist, uh, you know, leftist. And I just thought like it wouldn't work out like that. Um, but, uh, you know, God forbid it's horrible. Uh, you know, there might be some comment on on what, you know, maybe you or your right things, you know, might, might say that, you know, she was, uh, you know, she was doing sit-ins and pushing for open borders and refugees and, uh, you know, that uh, you might say was a very bad idea. Um, but but she was a good hearted, nice person. You know, she was generally nice to everybody. And, you know, we'll have to see, like, uh, it's Detroit. So the chances are they're not going to figure out who killed her. But uh, you know, maybe there'll be some evidence if there's no home invasion or no robbery uh, or, or something that uh, might enlighten us on it. And then God forbid, this is the start of a trend that uh, you're going to see that uh, you have more and more powerful Jews start getting assassinated, God forbid. So, uh, you know, that's generally like de-escalate. Um, I mean, it's tough. That, that's the divide between like uh, American liberals and right-wing Jews. You're know, saying, okay, that's why we got to arm up and we got to uh, be ready for the fight and, uh, you know, stop the immigrants from coming. And it's the same push of the liberal leftist Jews. It's like, that's why we have to support diversity and all these various things. So it's very difficult to know what to do. Uh, but I appreciate you having me on. Um, I'm not sure if the frame games investigation might, go, but that could be interesting to say, you know, maybe he was a really big player and you could say like of all the people you spoke to that actually frame games was the most significant person you ever had on your channel or that I ever spoke to. And uh, that, that might be an interesting development also. And, and I actually somewhat defended him to the journalist and, and uh, you know, not like, you know, I critiqued some of his stuff, but I was somewhat defensive in the, uh, you know, some, some of uh, what he did. And even if, uh, you know, she is right and he did pull off all this stuff, you know, somewhat props to Mike Benz, like uh, that's some genius of, uh, you know, some other level that maybe none of us have ever even conceived of. Okay, David, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Okay, God bless. Okay, blessings. All right. Uh, the, the Torah takes it for granted that men are going to rape during war. What it tries to do is restrict the, the the raping and just as the torah takes it for granted that at this particular time uh, uh that there will be slavery so the torah does not outlaw slavery does not outlaw rape in time of war it just puts so many restrictions on the the raping and the slavering that it makes life easier to abstain but uh if you if you want more details you can look at deuteronomy chapter 21 is a translation, when you, an Israelite warrior, take the field against your enemies, 
and then your God delivers them into your power, and you take some of them captive. And this is what's gone on for Hamas. They've taken a lot of Israeli women captive. So this is what the Torah says. All right, you take, you take uh, women captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire her, and you would take her into your household as your wife. You shall bring her into your household, and she shall trim her hair and cut her nails. She shall discard her captive's garb. She shall spend a month's time in your home lamenting her father and mother. After that, you may come to her and thus become her husband, and she shall be your wife. So here is a mechanism for trying to transform wartime rape into some kind of permanent arrangement, some some marriage. But there are rabbinic commentators who do permit rape in time of war. But the Torah and the Torah's tradition does try to restrict it. Now, we see out of Hamas that uh, they, they killed many of the less attractive Jewish women and then took dozens of them presumably as, as hostages. And uh, here's a translation from a video that uh, Hamas really released where they're boasting, this is not a prisoner, this one is for rape. So take it back. No, no, take it back. This is not a prisoner. This one is for rape. Go back. Okay, so what type of people are attracted to extremism, to cults? Right, to converting to a new religion, lonely people. All right, I have spent much of my life feeling lonely, and so a person like me is particularly in, interested and attracted to extremism, to excitement seeking, to joining cults, to joining a, a new religion. And uh, this is Julia Ebner, an academic expert in extremism. Forms are also playing a big role, and again, some movements already have that inherently. Part, integrated as part of their their ideology, like the accelerationist movement, for example, where they already see violence as necessarily being part of of any form of radical change. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> so those were the different those were the different factors that came up as as kind of the most um, statistically significant when when analyzing terrorist manifestos. So this is a bit of a subversive question, but when I was um... Um, listening to you talk uh, earlier today in some of those recordings, um, I was wondering whether or not the stuff that you focus on, which is more at the extremes, corresponded to the stuff that we tended to look at, which is more in the in the normal range, if you like, of, of um, relatively normal, relatively <laughs> normal, but it but still has these features. This is from the podcast Decoding the Gurus of cultishness. Still has this the in group and the out group and. I was even like I was looking at there was a particularly inflammatory um, video on Twitter. Some some rich capitalist type was talking oh, yeah. like mean about workers, and there was the usual sort of guillotine memes and responses from 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 people that are more social. So that sort of pinged what you just mentioned about condoning violence towards the out group. So it, it's a bit of a tricky question, but I'm just wondering whether or not you reckon there's a big qualitative difference, like a sharp distinction between the stuff you see at the extremes and the stuff that all of us, to one degree or another, are kind of susceptible to in terms of the little little cultures and little groups that we find ourselves in. I think from my experience and also from talking to a lot of radicalized individuals, I feel like we're all prone to radicalization, not at all times. Um, I think there are always specific moments in, in our lifetimes where but pretty much everyone is susceptible to, to radical narratives and even to, to radicalization. Yes, if you're in a place of extremism, in a place of particular distress, you're going to be more prone to radicalization. Or if you're simply in an extreme situation, you're a normal person, 
like a lot of movies, like uh, the Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot, you're just a normal bloke, and then you're placed in a situation of extreme stress, then you're more likely to seek extreme solutions for extreme problems. Yeah, potentially even towards violence. I guess that's also that's part of human nature. And I definitely, I also, when I did my research, I sometimes also felt like I was getting closer to actually being more receptive and being more prone to radicalization whenever I was in a tricky personal life phase or, for example, after a difficult breakup or when you're already in, a, in an identity crisis, then it definitely feels like we could all be prone to that. And of course, there is also a, a very human thing of that we like to watch videos that are or content that is what we've always liked to watch we've always liked to watch gladiator fights or bloody things or witches being being hung or unfortunately that is really driving our attention to to content today still these types of of, of pieces of content that are either very sensationalist or even bloody or or at least in some shape or form apocalyptic or violent and i guess yeah some of the memes that we see today on the very in, in the open public would also speak to that and memes are a very powerful way of communicating because you can make a joke with a meme but still have quite a deep message behind it and have or maybe even a, an extremist message behind it yeah an interesting dynamic there is kind of like sometimes the more extreme characters are, are brought into content to be denounced or argued with but they can also yeah often moderate people like those who are more extreme in politics in their direction. So people on the moderate right you know, often appreciate people on the hard right. People on the moderate left often have a weak spot for people on the hard left. It'll be used to present positions which are then not whitewashed exactly, but suggested there's something to the argument and it's good that we hear these people out. And I remember, you know, with the kick streamers and some of the other platforms, you're, you now have this wave of people performing stunts that are, you know, quite antisocial. Um, sometimes overtly racist and, and so on, and then getting social outrage directed at them. But that also increases their, their profile. And I, I just seen recently in, in Japan, there's a streamer called Johnny Somali who travels around, was was making comments about Hiroshima and Nagasaki on a train in Japan and, you know, streaming it and generating offense. And he just recently got punched in the street by, by some random person. But then that was shared as, you know, like a kind of cathartic moment where everybody was sharing, like, look at this comeuppance. But he was promoting it on his feed because it's, you yeah. know, increasing. So it's a, it's such a toxic issue that, uh, you know, Carl Davis appearing. Yeah, I, I got to admit that uh, I took a hard look at myself after my Jim Goad stream, which I think was something like uh, December of 2018 or December of 2019. And my... I set my show in a very different direction after that. I developed a code of conduct because I saw how easily my show became a, a toxically reinforcing agent for antisocial expression. With Piers Morgan recently as well, a Hopefully, similar kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. His stunts really drive the traffic towards towards content. And we've seen a lot of influencers also like Andrew Tate make use of such quite aggressive rhetoric or quite provocative, crossing the borders of what's what's socially acceptable and breaking those taboos. And I think that's really become a key tactic in the digital age to 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 make content go viral. But of course it's also really been exploited by especially by extremists who benefit from that because in any case they would be breaking taboos, they would be going beyond those limits. So they are the ones who really benefit from that from that digital dynamic. I, one thing, Julia, is like, I think in some respect, the dynamics that you were talking about in your earlier books about the, the kind of far right and Islamist movements having degrees of overlap look a lot more obvious in some respect when you have figures like Andrew Tate and various other influencer types who have strong right wing, socially conservative views and then ostensibly become Muslims, right? So I think in some respect, those connections are a little bit clearer or, or right wing figures in the US celebrating the Taliban for their, their yeah. strong gender roles. But I'm, I'm curious, and this might be a little bit of a provocative suggestion, but I'm just curious what you think about this. So there's obviously an interplay and an interaction overlap there, but other people with various degrees of seriousness have argued that 
elements of the far left and the far right feed off each other uh, in in presenting that they're fighting a, a kind of black and white cosmic battle against fascism, or they're trying to save the country from the neo-communist takeover. And with varying degrees of rigor have suggested that there is a feedback going on there and a kind of interactive overlap, especially critique of the mainstream has been wrong. And I wonder, do you think there is merit to that argument? Or is that connection and dynamic overstated based on the communities that you've looked at? I think to some extent it's justified because the extreme edges usually meet somewhere. Um, and very often it is, as you say, in the kind of anti-mainstream, anti-establishment thinking, anti-status quo, wanting radical change. And when looking, however, at the similarities, for example, between Islamist and far-right extremist movements, there you really see that they have a lot of commonalities in wanting to go back to a distant time where privileges were, were still reserved and wanting to go back, reverse human rights to a level where they are misogynist, they are or they would be considered misogynist today, both Islamists and far-right extremists, of wanting to roll back women's rights, but also wanting to roll back yeah, the rights of, of people of other ethnicities or races or cultures. And and wanting to and also often there is there's a sense that they meet in their anti-Semitism. So there are overlaps between the far right and the far left as well, especially in, in anti-Semitism, for example, but also in these anti-establishment ideas, which often lend themselves to anti-Semitic conspiracy myths about the global elites and so on, plotting. For example, COVID is a good example, where you had a lot of these COVID-related conspiracy myths, including QAnon, um, that attracted people from both the far right and the far left. And a lot of people from kind of former leftist communities, from more the yoga and spiritual community actually joined, joined QAnon. Okay, so COVID was a big turning point for me early on. I read a book about the Spanish flu, the most popular, widely cited book about the Spanish flu of 1918 to 1920 that George, President George W. Bush read circa 2004, then said we must you know, set up a government task force on how to deal with an influenza epidemic like this if it comes around again. So I read about that Spanish flu influenza epidemic, and so I was more open to the conventional establishment mainstream narrative about the dangers of COVID than most people on the dissident right. Uh, Greg Johnson, I think, also of Countercurrents, also accepted the, the mainstream narrative about the dangers of, of COVID. And that was a big turning point for me, seeing how many people on the right, not just the dissident right, but mainstream conservatives went essentially anti-vax, uh, anti-lockdown, just reflexively anti-elite, anti-establishment, anti-mainstream, anti-what uh, doctors were saying. People like Dennis Prager, you know, a great deal of uh, talk show hosts. Uh, Tucker Carlson was a week ahead of Sean Hannity in warning about the dangers of COVID. And then Tucker switched a, a few months into COVID to be increasingly sympathetic to the anti-lockdown position. And then uh, Tucker became anti-vax. So that was a big turning point in me breaking with most of the right, most of right-wing pundits were anti-lockdown, anti-conventional methods for curtailing the COVID influenza. And so I took a big break there from most of the right-wing commentary, not to mention almost all distant right commentary was against uh, lockdowns for COVID. And uh, the Kofner's critique, another big turning point for me when I saw how virtually nobody on the, the distant right took it seriously that uh, people just, you know, accepted either the Kevin McDonald or the Nathan Kofner's critique, depending on how comfortable it was for them. And, and nobody else seemed to change their mind based on that critique, which I thought that Kofner's, and I still think Kofner's did a, a very powerful job. So that was March of 2018. That was a turning point for me. Then COVID, so probably by the, the second year of COVID, seeing the, the dominant, you know, anti-vax, 
positioning among right-wing pundits and the majority of distant right types. So that was another turning point for me. And that was influential in my journey. And then uh, splitting from Kevin Michael Grace and doing a solo show, it, it moved me away from Kevin's more... Uh, it moved me away from Kevin's point of view in that I wasn't talking to him every day and wasn't influenced by him because Kevin's incredibly intelligent, far more intelligent person than I am. He's a very good debater, very good at framing things, very compelling personality. And so when I wasn't talking to him every day, I wasn't you know, pulled, pulled in as much to some of his ways of thinking. And so when I went out on my own, that also marked a, an important turning point in the direction of my show. And so I feel good about the overwhelming majority of what I have produced online since February of 2020. And I feel okay about <laughs> almost everything I've produced since March of 2018. And then from 2014 to March of 2018, uh, there are some things I said that uh, not so thrilled with, some things I said that were okay, some things I said that were good. So those are some of the major turning points in my journey. Right, Sam Vakden, he's an interesting speaker on matters of narcissism. He's also interested in, interesting in matters of national security. I don't think he has any expertise in matters of geopolitics, but let's give him a shot here. And will do their best to eradicate or destroy the Hamas uh, infrastructure. But I think we are missing, and when I say we, I mean literally everyone, analysts, everyone, West and East and Arab uh, countries and in Israel itself. I think we're missing three important points, and maybe it's because we don't like to talk about these points. The first point is that the Israeli army and the Israeli intelligence community are much, much weaker than they were 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. I would even be a little extreme and say that the Israeli army and the intelligence community of Israel are paper tigers. They project force and power, but they don't have it. The Israeli army was subjected to severe budget cuts. Consequently, most of the Israeli soldiers are reservists. They go in reserve once, uh, once a year. Their training is very deficient and very low level. They don't know how to operate weapons and so on and so forth. I think the Israeli army today is inferior to the commando of Hezbollah, for example. Commando of Hezbollah is much better trained. So this is a, a very important uh, point. Israeli failures in terms of intelligence and in terms of defensive maneuvers near the Gaza border were not an accident. They reflected a systematic problem should Israel be faced with a multi-front problem, for example, should Israel be attacked from the north by Hezbollah, from the south by Hamas, from Syria by the Syrian army, which is backed by Russia and Iran, and internally from the West Bank, and also the Arabs that live in Israel as Israeli citizens, Israel will not survive. Israel does not have the capacity to win a five-front war Israel doesn't have the capacity to win a two-front war. Hezbollah has defeated Israel repeatedly, not once, twice. Okay, I think I, I don't agree with that analysis, but I found it provocative. And it's not true that Hezbollah 
has repeatedly defeated Israel. Hezbollah's own leader uh, said that its its 2006 conflict with Israel resulted in a massive loss for Hezbollah. Twice at least. So this is something no one is talking about. Everyone is pretending. And uh, Sam Vakden also has talked about how Gazans are Shia and they're not. They're 99% Sunni Muslims. Think that Israel is the greatest military, wonderful intelligence. This is a 30-year-old story. The quality of personnel in the Israeli army, the size of the Israeli army. Hamas, um, um, Hezbollah, has as many commandos as the Israeli army. The Radwan Brigade. So this is point number one. Point number two. The United States is not supporting Israel. The United States is trying to control Israel. There's a big difference. The United States is terrified of the crazy criminal government of Benjamin Netanyahu and of the man himself. Benjamin Netanyahu is an indicted criminal with multiple criminal cases in court. Several of his ministers have criminal records. They are all extreme far-right totally delusional religious people who believe that all, the, all of Israel should be Jewish and are willing to use power, aggression, and violence to accomplish this. They are closely allied with the settler movement and with other extreme right, essentially militias. So this is a very bad situation. The United States is terrified of what this government might do in terms of civilian casualties and in terms of provoking other countries, such as Iran, such as Egypt, such as Syria, and Jordan. So, the United States is there for damage control, not to support Israel, but to make sure that Israel doesn't misbehave. We can, we can prove this thesis easily. Let us look at the type of weapons that the United States is providing to Israel. The United States recently... Okay, here's the story of my life. I just realized that I have been running my air conditioner at full bore, you know, trying to bring the temperature down because the, the harder I work, you know, the more intense and demanding the, the thinking I, I'm trying to do, the, the cooler I like the temperature. And then I looked around, I saw I've also simultaneously or for, for hours prior to turning on the air conditioning, I've been running my heater. It's like I, I, I you know, try to go forward and I've got a gear in reverse and it, it's just like my life, just like going in circles, like different parts of myself, you know, fighting and contradicting and negating each other. Why have I been running my air conditioner for the past hour and my heater? Oy we started an air airlift um, of munitions and weapons to Israel. When we look at these weapons, these are not offensive weapons. They are all defensive weapons and precision munition, munition that doesn't kill civilians. United States is sending a clear message, do not kill civilians unnecessarily, and do not provoke your neighbors. Regrettably, that's exactly what Israel is doing. Israel reacted disproportionately to the provocations of Hezbollah. Israel unnecessarily provoked the West Bank, which was totally calm and peaceful after the... unnecessarily provoked the West Bank. Israel is... Uh, has attacked Syria because of a single rocket fired from the area of Syria. <laughs> we don't know. Syria is controlled by many factions, you know. So Israel attacked the, the airports and so on in an attempt to sabotage the Iranian minister's arrival. Israel is threatening Iran. Israel is definitely 
provoking a much bigger war, Israel is now trying to force Egypt to accept 1.1 million people from Gaza as refugees, which Egypt absolutely does not want to do, because Egypt regards them as potential terrorists, and they, are all, uh, they all represent Iran, they all Shia, and Egypt is Sunni. It's the, Egypt doesn't want this, and Israel is pressuring Egypt, putting it in an impossible situation. Egypt is Israel's only Arab friend. Israel shares intelligence, uh, Egypt shares intelligence with Israel. Egypt collaborates with Israel against the Hamas. Egypt blocked the exit to Egypt of Gaza, allowing Israel to impose an effective siege on Gaza. Okay, so what does Sam Vaknin propose? He would like Israel to stop being a Jewish state. He's a classical liberal. He does not believe in developing states along ethnic lines, as I understand it. Egypt is collaborating with Israel. It's a friend. It's an ally. Why? Why to antagonize it and make it into an enemy? I think the United States is there to try to control the situation, not because it's very friendly to Israel or because it wants to help Israel, but it wants to make sure that Israel doesn't go crazy in this situation. And of course, Israel went through a horrible experience, and there is a lot of wish for revenge. And, but Israel is a state. Israel is not a terrorist organization. Israel cannot behave this way. It has responsibilities as a state. State terrorism is terrorism, period. And the last point I want to make, the greatest internal enemy of Israel is not the Palestinians. The greatest internal enemy are the settlers. The settlers, these are people who came from outside. Most of them are American, actually, Jews. These are people who came from outside. They have totally grandiose, insane concepts that they should uh, own all the territory of Israel, should never give anything to the Palestinians, should even conquer Jordan. They are very aggressive, often very violent, and they invaded the West Bank and surrounded all the major habitations of the Palestinians there with the blessing of the government. Now the settlers are threatening to declare war on the Palestinians in the West Bank, and they are armed, they have militias, they have weapons. Now the Israeli Defense Forces has to, to, to make a war with Hamas, but it also is preparing to make war with the settlers to prevent them from attacking and provoking yet another war in the West Bank. Settlers are the greatest internal enemy of Israel, not Palestinians. Right, that's uh, Sam Vaknin. All right, let's get story here from Fox right News. Right now, Derek Anderson, former Green Beret who trained with the IDF. Derek, thank you. Molly? Thank you, sir. Police in Detroit are searching for a motive and a killer after a local Jewish leader was brutally killed outside of her home. Samantha Wall was the president of a downtown Detroit synagogue. Matt Finn has the latest on this. Matt. Molly, right now, the Detroit Police Department says it's mobilizing its own resources and turning to the community. Did she live alone? So traditionally, a major reason that women got married was to have a man around to protect them from situations like this. To find out whomever killed this prominent synagogue president. Samantha Wool was declared dead outside of her Detroit home yesterday. She was found stabbed to death. Police say a trail of blood led to her house. The motive unknown right now. The 40-year-old victim had led the Isaac Agri downtown synagogue since last year. She was a campaign staffer for Attorney General Dana Nessel and also a former aide to Democratic, Rep Democratic Representative Alyssa Slotkin. Representative Slotkin tweeting out she is heartbroken and writing about Wool, quote, 
In politics and in the Jewish community, she dedicated her short life to building understanding across faiths, bringing light in the face of darkness. And today, a fellow leader in the Jewish community is mourning Wool's death. Sam's role um, and, and, and the service that she provided transcended Detroit's Jewish community. It really was to the broader Metro Detroit community in, in Southeast uh, in Southeast Michigan. Um, you know, she really believed in, in a Jewish value of tikkun olam, repairing the world. And the Detroit police chief is urging the community not to draw or jump to any conclusions just yet as they search for answers. Molly. Yeah, what a loss. What a contributor. Uh, our condolences yeah. to her family. Matt Finn, thank you. Yep. All right, you're saying 40. Give me, give me more from Sam Vaknin. He just blows my mind. I mean, do I play Sam Vaknin or, or Dennis Prager? You decide. But you know why that won't resonate with most people? Because the left have cheapened the word Nazi. Yes. And fascist. And, and racist and existential threat. So Dennis Prager loves the idea of liberal fascism. He throws around the term liberal fascism. He throws around the term Islamofascism. He gives lectures on, on these things. He says that when you have socialized medicine, that that's fascist, that when you have increased government intervention in the economy, that's fascist. Dennis Prager constantly misusing and abusing the, the term fascist, but now calling out the left for misusing fascist. And threat to democracy and domestic terrorist and insurrection. They have cheapened every word so it doesn't mean... Dennis, you cheapened so many words. You pollute so much discourse. I mean, the whole essence of what you do, generally speaking, is to engage in semantic pollution. You distort knowledge, right? You engage in epistemic corruption. Epistemic means how do we know what we know? You distort, manipulate knowledge for your own personal, professional, monetary gain. And so you pollute discourse and you damage lives. This is what you do, Dennis, the thing that you're accusing the left of. Se sexual Offended. assault. If a man rubs a woman's shoulder, and he shouldn't have, but it's not, it's not, it's not. Very few men are accused of uh, sexual assault for just uh, rubbing a woman's shoulder. Dead. That was the constant refrain. I said it's the easiest conflict in the world to understand and the toughest to solve. Mm -hmm. That was my theme. It's very simple. One side wants the other side dead. A lot of Israelis were in denial about this, which is part of. Uh, most Israelis want the Palestinians to disappear, which is just a nicer way of saying it wants them dead. Their complacency with what allowed this to happen, totally understandably. Decent people have a very hard time understanding evil. This has been the theme of my life, whether it was communism or whether it is uh, Islamism as opposed to just Islam, the Islamic radical. It's a good distinction, Islamism versus Islam. Oh, well, I always use that's yeah. right. And even in, in the book that touched you, mm -hmm. I, I, I call it Islamism. Yeah. So anyway, I will tell you, you know, it takes a lot to get me down. You know what Islamism is? It's people who take Islam a little bit more seriously than Dennis Prager would like them to. The, the scene of... You know, moderates count for nothing in Islamic life because it is those 
who are most devoted to Islam who, who rule. The, the, the moderates, the, the liberals in Islamic life have, have no power and influence because just like liberals and moderates have no power and influence in Gaza because Hamas is willing to kill for power and the most devoted Muslims are willing to kill for their power and the liberals and the moderates simply are ineffective against them and thus they count for nothing. Of Jews being slaughtered family by family. So let me just say a couple of things and then obviously I want to hear from you. But I, I, I do want to say, first of all, as Israelis are noting, more Jews were killed on Saturday of, that, of, of these events than at any, in any one day since the Holocaust. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Of course, you, there would be no reason you would. I didn't think of it, actually, till I, I read it in Israeli newspapers. Israelis are very, very aware of that. And you don't have to be a religious person. You could be an atheist and understand that. That's a fact. Second, that's all they want to do is murder Jews. And anyone who supports Hamas in the Hamas-Israeli dilemma, like the, the morons I debated at Oxford, true morons, academics, needless to say, with PhDs, but in many cases, PhD means fool. And the, the, the debate, people should watch it. It's on YouTube. My debate at Oxford. Do you know what the debate, you, you remember, the, the yes. debate was? Who is the greater threat to peace in the Middle East, Hamas or Israel? <laughs> and, and I debated a professor at Oxford who was an Israeli, ironically, maybe not ironically, who was an idiotic Israeli who said, Israel is the greater threat. Is, is, there, is there an Israeli who wants to go to every Muslim home and slaughter the, the parents and the children? I, I, it, people don't have an easy... Yes, there, there are such Israelis. ...time recognizing evil. Because they're weak. People are weak. I'm just astounded at the moral confusion. That's the thing. The existence of evil itself is hard enough. But then to see all of these people who are... Well, the world isn't run on the basis of which side is more moral, right? The world operates, generally speaking, on the side of which side is more effective, which side is more powerful, which side is more cohesive and has more powerful alliances with other sides saying, oh, well, Israel is fully responsible. I'll read you one. I'm sure you're aware of it. I'm sure you discussed it on your show. Oh, read it. No, Harvard. Read it. Oh, yeah, yeah. You want to know what, what is it, 27 groups? I think 31 groups. Ready? We, the undersigned student organizations, hold the Israeli regime entirely responsible. How sick do you have to be to think that? Well, well, you should the read the, the names of the groups because it gives oh. you an idea. You don't have to be sick to think that. You just have to be a normal human being who instinctively sides with his group against another group when the two groups are at war. Right? People don't tend to have nuanced, objective thinking when the, the two sides are at war. The idea of the state of the Muslim Arab world today, morally speaking, not all by any means. Of course. I mean, I want to make that clear. I mean, there are many wonderful Arabs, many wonderful Muslims, but there were many wonderful Germans. But so read the names of all the Harvard groups that said Israel is entirely responsible for the fact that people went into their homes and slaughtered the families. I'm okay, enough on that. Let's get more from Sam Vaknin. If you have... If you develop a narrative, if you develop a story, and you get caught in your own story, when you have preconceptions, and when you have models, and when you have beliefs about the enemy, and you refuse to examine yourself uh, objectively, then of course you will make mistakes. Israel had a lot of information about the coming attack, including the date of the attack. Abbas actually sent WhatsApp messages to many Israelis telling them the last day of the holiday of Sukkot is going to be a black day for you. So they knew the date. Hamas released between December last year and two weeks ago, Hamas released multiple videos demonstrating how they're going to take over Kibbutzim and kill everyone. 
So they, they was, there was a demonstration with Hamas soldiers on video, public video. There were various, various warnings, not maybe with details, but definitely warnings from, for example, from Egypt. So Israel knew, but refused to believe. Sometimes you have information, but you refuse to believe. Like if someone comes to you and say, your wife is cheating on you, <laughs> you will refuse to believe. You will deny it. You will reframe it. You will be, get angry at the messenger. So this is what happened. It was not a problem of intelligence gathering. It was a problem of, of intelligence evaluation and intelligence interpretation. There was a paradigm that Hamas doesn't want war now. Hamas wants economic prosperity. Hamas needs success in Gaza to remain in power. Because Hamas, the popularity of Hamas declined from 53% in 2021 to 31% in 2023. There was a total collapse in the popularity of Hamas. And the Israelis convinced themselves that the way to pacify Hamas is to let Hamas, to allow Hamas, to create an economic miracle in Gaza. So the Israelis gave 60,000 work permits to people from Gaza to work inside Israel. They gave, they gave uh, the Gaza Strip 75% of its electricity consumption, 50% of its fuel consumption, 69% of its food consumption, and 73% of its medication consumption. All came from Israel. Israel collaborated monetarily with the Hamas. Most of the budget of, of Hamas came from Israel in the form of VAT refunds. So there was full-fledged collaboration between Israel and the Hamas, and Israel convinced itself that the Hamas will no longer emphasize the military solution, but instead now is busy getting re-elected, political power, staying in power, etc. Et that was a huge mistake because the Hamas was preparing for war. Okay, how about some more from Sam Wagner? And non-negotiable. And that was it. It was a take it, life was a take it or leave it proposition. No one felt victimized. And so first we should make a distinction between sacrifice and victimhood because they're often conflated and confused. There are spiritual traditions centered around sacrifice, the most famous of which is obviously Christianity, where, you know, Jesus chose to sacrifice himself. And so sacrifice entails two elements. One, being chosen somehow. There's an element of choice, usually choice by God, but not necessarily. Being chosen by an ideology, by God, by um, non-individual collectivist forces and so on. So there's an element of choice. And the second element in sacrifice is a kind of apotheosis. In other words, becoming one with God or becoming closer to God or enjoying the benefit of God's proximity or God's grace in the case of re a religious tradition. Similarly, merging with the state or enjoying the benefits of the state or sacrificing oneself in order to uphold the state. So in sacrifice traditions, there's an element of choice an element of somehow merging or fusing or getting enmeshed with a bigger whole, with a bigger entity than yourself. And of course, we have examples of Catholic martyrs, yes, martyrology in Catholicism, in Protestantism, you're chosen by God, and the proof that you're chosen by God is that you're successful and rich. So that's proof of that's the Protestant work ethic, that's the proof that God has chosen you, and so on and so forth. These are all sacrifice traditions. They have nothing to do with victimhood. Jesus was never a victim. The Catholic martyrs were never victims. The, sh the, sh the Shahid, the suicide bomber in Islamic tradition is never a victim. These are not victims. They have made choices. This is all voluntary. 
Victimhood is a Jewish tradition. And actually, it's an exclusively Jewish tradition. There is no... Okay, I, I find that impossible to believe. ...other spiritual tradition in the world, which upholds victimhood as a central tenet. It's a Jewish tradition. Recall Jewish history. Slavery in Egypt. The Jews were victims in Egypt. Exile, the Roman exile. The Jews were the victims of Roman aggression. Of course, recently, or more recently, the Holocaust, where the Jews were a victim, not victims of Nazi Germany. Victimhood defines defines the worldview, the Weltanschauung of, of the Jewish people throughout their history. Actually, the first act of Abraham was to sacrifice, or, or to attempt to sacrifice his son, Isaac, to render his son a victim, in effect. So... Okay, I don't think that uh, the Jews are the first people to invent victimhood, but a provocative thesis there from Sam Wagner. It's, it's a kind of manipulative tactic because you can modify other people's behaviors and there are, as I said, expectations. As a victim, you have rights and other people have commensurate obligations. There's also the issue of competitive victimhood. You compete with other victims. I'm much more of a victim than you are. There's a hierarchy of victims. My abuser was much worse than your abuser. Reminds me of children. You know, my dad is my dad is stronger than your dad, and this kind of thing. We have this. We have this visibly, especially online. If you put the three together, victimhood pays, deceptive signaling, and competitive victimhood, you realize it's a capitalist endeavor. And I'm not deprecating capitalism. What I mean to say, it's a money-spinning proposition. It's a scam. It's simply a scam. Now. Am I disputing the fact that there are victims? Of course not. Victims exist. There are many victims, real ones. Ironically, the real ones are likely to stay at home and shut up. We know that real victims are full of shame. They feel helpless. They're depressed. They're anxious. They're dysfunctional. And the last thing they want to do. Okay, some good points there from Sam Vaknin. Okay, so. Joe Biden's treatment of the Middle East and uh, Israel in particular reminds me a lot of President Lyndon Baines Johnson, who would select targets for bombing. I looked this up. Neil Sheehan wrote for the New York Times, June 15, 1971, that President Johnson and Secretary of Defense McNamara continued to select the targets in North Vietnam and to communicate them to the Joint Chiefs, thus eventually to the operating strike forces in weekly rolling thunder planning messages issued by the Secretary of Defense. So why would a president try to micromanage a war like this? And I think it is part of this modern liberal conception of the self that we are strategic, buffered, autonomous, reflexive beings who shape our own destiny and the world around us by following the dictates of reason. This is an enlightenment perspective that people are basically good and they can shape themselves in the world by the power of reason. This is quite different from the traditional conception of the self that we are porous and tragic. So philosopher Charles Taylor, a man of the left, wrote in his 2007 book, A Secular Age, here is the contrast between the modern bounded self, I want to say buffered self, and the porous self of the earlier enchanted world. For the modern buffered self, the possibility exists of taking a distance from disengaging from everything outside the mind. Now, this is what I strive to do on the show, but I, I don't think I can live this way you know, most of the time outside the show, and I don't think people do live this way most of the time. So from this modern perspective, my ultimate purposes are those which arise within me, 
the crucial meanings of things are those defined in my responses to them. I can decide meaning and morality from within my own head is the modern liberal secular leftist perspective on people, while the traditional perspective is that meaning and morality exist outside of ourselves and we have the ability to conform or to rebel. So the poorest self, the traditional conception of the self, right, the source of its most powerful and important emotions are outside the mind, that meaning and purpose and morality exist outside of oneself. The very notion that there is some kind of clear boundary allowing us to define you know, ourselves and in which we can disengage ourselves from everybody else makes no sense. So even when I'm all alone, I'm thinking constantly about the most important relationships in my life. But as a modern bounded self, I can see this boundary between myself and others as a buffer. So things don't need to get to me, to use the contemporary expression. That's the sense to my use of the term buffer. This self can see itself as invulnerable, as master of the meanings for it. Joe Biden similarly thinks he can master the Middle East conflict, that he can create a buffered conflict between Israel and the Arabs, just like the liberal thinks he can create a buffered self that masters meaning and morality. And this same type of modern liberal secular thinking believes in things like affirmative consent. So colleges across the country have instituted affirmative consent, right? college policies governing sexual activity among students. And this is commentary from FIRE, the Foundation of Individual Rights in Expression. So affirmative consent policies require that participants in any sexual activity obtain objectively demonstrable consent at every step of a sexual encounter. So can you sign off on me holding your hand? Can you sign off on me kissing you? Can you sign off on me French kissing you? Can you sign off on me rubbing a particular part of your body? Can you sign off on me removing these items of clothing? Can you sign off on me penetrating these particular orifices? Okay, so it's rather difficult, absent a recording for an accused student to be able to demonstrate that he or she received a verbal and explicit yes for a sexual encounter even when consent was given. But from a modern liberal secular perspective, you can engage in promiscuous sex ethically as long as there's affirmative consent all the way. And if the woman just changes her mind, even in the midst of intercourse, and you are five seconds from ejaculating, you need to pull out right there. Right? So the, the modern secular liberal left conception is that individuals can engage in promiscuous sex and promiscuous war ethically, while the trad sees sex and war as incredibly powerful situations that will frequently overwhelm the best of our intentions to be ethical. So I see similarity between this notion that college students can be governed by affirmative consent every step of the way in a sexual interaction as part of the same liberal modern mentality that wants to carefully manage the Ukraine and Israel wars. So from a traditional perspective, sex between people who are not married to each other is frequently going to be so powerful that it is likely to overwhelm the grandest of ethical plans. From a traditional perspective, war will evoke such tribal emotions in people that it too will overwhelm the grandest of intentions. So the more intense a situation 
the more difficult it is for individuals to act in this reasoned, buffet, strategic, autonomous, liberal left conception of the self. The more intense our emotions, the more intense the situation, the more tribally we will experience life. For example, the drunker people get, the more tribal and right-wing they get. Luke Croft says, Israel needs to pursue a one-state solution and embrace multiculturalism. Netanyahu's Likud vision of blood and soil nationalism belongs to the 20th century. Any Jewish commentary on the political stabilizing effect for the Israeli regime? Not sure I have any. But uh, Ronnie Goldman, who I am going to be interviewing in four hours, largely about the Arab-Israeli conflict, he's written a terrific book, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression on the Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. So he, he contrasts the Lord of the Manor morality, where you can expel gas and say uncouth things because you're the lord of your manor, with courtier morality, which is the modern liberal conception of how we should operate, where you take into account that every group, every individual who can possibly be affected by your words, and you should have a sense of who's most vulnerable, who's most sacred, who you're not allowed to mock or criticize publicly. So we had, beginning in the 17th and 18th century, the emergence of a peculiarly courtly rationality with it, the demand for good behavior, and that all problems concerned with behavior now take on a new importance because you're not just lord of the manor anymore, you are a courtier. So this is the origin of political correctness, right? It is the projection of the norms of courtly etiquette onto the public and political stage. It extends its demand not to offend to an ever-widening array of contexts. It extends its scope to include a much broader range of sensibilities and sensitivities. Now, the privileged can enjoy relaxation within the framework to establish new standards, and this is what liberals do when they promote understanding, equal respect, tolerance, and related ideals. All right, it's not tolerance for, for white people, not tolerance for Christians, all right, it's tolerance for their designated you know, special groups who need to be exempt from any kind of public criticism. So you've got the the modern liberals are the new Victorians. They do not denounce drunkenness, but only those who take advantage of their partner's drunkenness. They trivialize rape by associating it with date rape, defined so loosely as to include consensual intercourse that is belatedly regretted by the woman. So this creates a new and unprecedented level of repression. So the morality of the new Victorians is novel and contrived, officially legislated and coercively enforced. But uh, Ronnie Goldman says that what uh, Gertrude Himmelfarb here interprets as the arbitrariness of the new Victorian morality is really liberals' more thoroughgoing internalizing of the buffered identity. With a high level of habit, technical and institutional self-control taken as a given, that the buffered modern liberal left's identity function as a mechanism for constantly governing yourself, the dangers of drunkenness and promiscuity then recede into the background. And so the concern can now shift to the individual's inner depth. The innerness of the buffered identity becomes a fountain of self-expression and following your bliss and less a center of self-control as it was for the Victorians. So you take on 
liberals would hope, the disciplines and repressions of the buffered identity of which Victorian prudery is merely an earlier iteration. And you can see these disciplines and repressions at play in feminist Louise Pinot's proposal that rape law should presume that a woman has consented to intercourse only when she was offered communicative sexuality, according to which mutual sexual enjoyment requires an atmosphere of comfort and communication, a minimum of pressure, and an ongoing checkup on one's partner's state. Now, I am renowned for being an unselfish and considerate lover, but there have been times when I have engaged in a little bit of selfish thrusting without checking in that this is what my partner wanted. So any sex that does not live up to this standard is now presumed non-consensual because good sex aspires to the same ideals as good conversation, right? Good conversationalists are intuitive, sympathetic, and charitable. And believe me, I've usually been the most intuitive, sympathetic, and charitable lover you can imagine, but there were moments where I got overcome by my selfish urges and I wasn't really checked in to what my partner wanted. Right, a good conversationalist do not overwhelm their respondents with a barrage of their own opinions. And I'm not usually you know, overwhelmed my lovers with a barrage of my thrusting. Right? While the good conversationalist may be persuasiveness, the forcefulness of their persuasion does not lie in their being overbearing. And so when I have made love, I would like to think I have not usually been you know, forceful, overbearing. I, I would think that I've you know, been a, a good, considerate, unselfish conversationalist. I'd like to think that I, I have maintained the capacity to see the other person's point of view, to understand what's going on for them, and to address their essential needs with tact and clarity, right? So the courtly norms provide the basic stock of models that uh, come to be disseminated within wider society. And so these proposals by Pinot, just the latest and most ambitious of such extensions, which apply to the purely courtly rationality, not only into the restraint of sexuality, but to sex itself. So courtly etiquette requires language that is clear, transparent, and precisely regulated. So it also requires a sex that is empathic and conversational. Right? So the buffered self is the self that is defined by the possibility of disengaging from the self and the self-selfish thrusting needs. And this demand for disengagement means to take a distance from, from everything outside the mind and to establish an inner base area through which to distinguish how things really are as opposed to how things feel. So I remember when I had sex with Kendra Jade, afterwards she said, Luke, you know how most porn stars are asked if they are abused as kids and they say, no, well, we really were abused because when I have sex, I kind of float above myself up on the ceiling and then kind of experience myself looking down on the sex that is occurring. So perhaps that is an ideal expression of this buffered identity. So have you guys enjoyed the pleasures of this sort of communicative sexuality to ensure that self-possession is required to distinguish between authentic, inwardly generated desire from externally induced pleasure and you're checking in to make sure that consent is re-elicited and reissued at every stage of a sexual encounter? I hope so. Uh, you doing all that you can, please, to promote the ethos of disengaged self-control and self-reflexivity. 
without which a woman's true feelings cannot be distinguished from whatever fleeing merely animal impulses her seducer may succeed in simulating. So I have known women who have experienced orgasms during sex that they did not want. But these were merely animal impulses that her seducer succeeded in stimulating. So the idea that consensual intercourse is later regretted by the woman and that constitutes rape, right, that reflects this modern buffered liberal sense of the self that the seducer was indifferent to the eliciting the woman's consent at every stage. And this seems to embody, from where I stand, you know, much of the thinking behind this modern liberal conception that America can carefully stage manage the Ukraine war and the Israel war. So Joe Biden is very particular about which weapon systems he will you know, give to Ukraine and he agonizes. Do they get cluster bombs? Do they get you know, jets? What, what do they get? The primary goal of an Israeli intelligence, uh, and it has been for 20 years, the only real security threat that they face and they share a border with it. And every text message and cell phone call that uh, is made in Gaza goes through an Israeli cell tower. So they should have all the tools. I mean, know that people on the ground, we know that they've embedded within the system and they failed utterly. So the only solution they have uh, for rooting out Hamas is to go into the Gaza Strip and go house to house through an area twice the size of the District of Columbia with a population of 2.3 million and, and physically rip up everything from the roots. And that is a process that won't take weeks or months. That will take years. And when they're done, they will then have to decide if they want to stay and occupy and run it themselves, which they really don't want to, or they leave and just let the next generation of whatever the replacement is for Hamas grow up. Um, it's an ugly situation, but it is a tempest in a teapot. Let's go to the region. Uh, the only country aside from Israel that Gaza borders is Egypt. And people forget that the Egyptians controlled the territory from 1949 to 1973 and hated it. I'd say that the only people that the Palestinians are more disliked by than, say, the Israelis, are the Egyptians. And there's absolutely no love lost. And it took Biden personally interceding to get the Egyptians to agree to allow aid into the southern crossings into Gaza. The Egyptians would be thrilled if everyone in Gaza just dies. Uh, Jordan is a non-factor. Jordan it doesn't really have a military upworthy of the name anymore. And anyway, it's a satellite state of Israel, so no problem there. Syria is in civil war. And most of the fighting is going on in the northwest and the northeast parts of the country, which leaves the south. Now, the south is primarily populated by Druze who don't really care for the central government at all, but have sat out the war. And then you've got the Golan, which is unpopulated. So any effort by the central government or by, say, Iranian proxies in Syria. So I'm reading Nathan Hill's novel, listening to it as an audible book on wellness. And uh, it's just hilarious. And this little section from the novel kind of reminds me of America's intentions to try to ethically manage the wars in Ukraine and in Israel. So Jack searched the web for ways to tone his body. And that's when ads for the system began their assault. He saw the first one on Facebook between two posts from his father, in which, as usual, the old man was ranting angrily in all capital letters. Then he saw the cryptic ad for something called The System. It had suddenly appeared outside of Facebook on some random website up there on the top banner. And then the ad began following Jack all around the web, showing up all over the place, cycling through slogans till it found the one that caught to him the most. This is from uh, Nathan Hill's novel, Wellness. 
don't work harder, work smarter. Huge gains, no noise. The data-driven route to ripped abs. Area would have to relocate forces from a hot front to open up a new hot front where there's a buffer zone anyway, and their chances of doing anything are very, very slim. I mean, this is not the Syria of 1972 when it had a military. It's been rabid. Whoa, did he say buffered? All right, so the system's whole allure seemed built on the premise that it somehow peered into your body and extracted the most consequential data. Data would then be used to build a personalized, optimized workout program, right? Joe Biden is trying to develop a personalized, optimized workout program for the Israeli and Ukraine military. It had been persuasive enough to lead Jack here to the gym, one of several people at the gym today who was on the system. You could always tell people which, who were on the system because, first of all, they all had the same wearable, a wristband that looked like a watch without a face in the system's signature color, tiger orange. And second, because they would all of a sudden sit up very straight. It was because of the app's posture not notification, which let you know when you were slouching, which Jack was doing all the time, apparently, because roughly every 10 minutes, the bracelet would buzz to let him know he was, again, drooping, and his phone would light up with another message about spinal health or neck stiffness or energy flow or something similarly posturally related. A gym full of people randomly doing this, popping up powerfully erect, had a whack-a-mole quality. How the bracelet knew he was slouching was a mystery, as was how it knew his blood oxygenation level, sweat pH, skin plasticity, hydration, lactic acid levels, diabetes risk, UV exposure, even his current mode. The bracelet kept track of all these things as well as more explicable data like heart rate and steps walked and sleep quality. He received a report each morning about the previous night's sleep. The bracelet having monitored is tossing and turning all night. It even had a microphone that would record him snoring, which the app would play back for him the following day. So one day he leaves his, his uh, wearable in the bedroom and uh, he sleeps in his, his office and uh, it... <laughs> The next morning, he's he's checking his, his phone, and it says that uh, he was snoring last night. So he, he was listening to supposedly audio of him snoring, but it was actually his wife using this vibrator he'd bought her called the Madagascar, and she would never use it with him. But at night when she'd wake up, she'd go to town with the Madagascar. And the poor bloke had to find out about it because he'd left his wearable in the bedroom. The system quantified everything. Not only hard numbers like calories consumed, a waist circumference, and bicep size, but also softer, more abstract measurements like Jack's feelings of well-being, optimism, and passion, and whether he was flourishing. The system asked him to describe his work life and his home life, and so he went ahead and typed up a comprehensive essay about his career. I mean, isn't this a, a classic uh, liberal perspective that we can just optimize, we can flourish, that uh, you know we are the master of meanings and morality. And so he types up a comprehensive essay about his career, how it looked so promising following his graduation when he'd been hired as an adjunct professor. And he was super grateful. But uh, now, not so much. Jack keyed all of this into his phone, slowly, as he'd never mastered typing on his phone the way his eight-year-old son was doing it with two thumbs at blazing speed. He hoped the app could have some kind of magic answer for him, some solution to the problem of his stagnant career. It sent him a coupon for a seminar he could take on how to become a realtor. Regarding his wife, Jack felt a worrying distance from her. 
that there was a strange, small-lurking antagonism that she'd been expressing latent domestic frustration since they'd purchased the new condo. He feared that the exigencies of parenthood had slowly transformed their marriage into one that uh, was you know, focusing on more mundane tasks and the, the, the love and the excitement had, had gone out of his, his life. And so this idea of mastering your life and being able to fine-tune everything for you know, optimal human flourishing, you know, collecting all of this guy's subjective happiness data and all the objective data that the bracelet accumulated and using deep learning AI to develop the personalized workout routine and the personalized life routine for this bloke, the optimal daily meals, the times he should optimally eat them, how much water to optimally drink with them, the optimal time to go to sleep, the optimal time to wake up, the recommended ways to optimize his marriage. It just reminds me of the way that liberals tried to you know, micromanage the Vietnam War, now the Ukraine War, and now the war with Israel and Gaza. ...by the war and everything's locked down, so they're a non-factor. Then you've got Lebanon. Lebanon is a borderline failed state. Uh, Hezbollah is the militant group that is there, uh, and they certainly don't care for the Israelis at all. But there's two things that hold them back. Number one, they are part of the national government. So there are other factions in uh, Lebanon that would politically restrain them if they get too uppity because they know that in the Israelis' current state of mind, the Israelis would not think twice of sending in some assassins and just wiping out the entire government. Uh, and that is a very focusing factor for the non-Hezbollah factor factions within Lebanon. And then second, while Lebanon could definitely send, Hezbollah could definitely send a lot of rockets into northern Israel, that doesn't change what's going on in Gaza or honestly overly shift the military disposition of the Israeli army. And Hezbollah doesn't have an army. Uh, if they were to launch a ground invasion, they would be massacred. So they are definitely the faction to watch, but the chances of them doing anything meaningful are very, very low. All right, next slide, the country's up, Iran. Uh, the Iranians don't have anything they can really do directly. They could launch some long-range missiles. All that would do would be generate a huge amount of international condemnation and get this, all the sanctions slammed back in in a, a matter of seconds. Might even get the United States to do some slow boat trips by all of their oil platforms and just blow them to hell. We did that back in the 1980s. Uh, the target to watch there is a place called Karg Island, which is their only, only oil offloading facility. You take that online, that's the end of the entire export industry for Iran. So it's a question about whether they would risk that in order to do something symbolic that would have absolutely no impact on the ground. Uh, they also have militants in Syria, but again, they're on the wrong side of the country, and they're already engaged. And if they crossed into Druze territory, that would be interesting because the Druze are badass. Okay. Uh, they have always considered Hamas to be disposable. Uh, Hamas is Sunni and Arab, whereas the Iranians are Persian and Shia. Uh, and so the official position of the Iranian government is that Hamas, like all Sunni Arabs, uh, are apostates and therefore should be wiped out. Uh, and their alliance with them is purely tactical, and they have played that card, and now it will be destroyed, and they'll have to find a new card. That's Iran. That's Iran's entire position here. Uh, the only country that really matters, and it's not from a military point of view here, is Saudi Arabia, because the Saudi Arabians were carrying out talks with the Israelis on normalization. Uh, the idea would be that if you can get the major Arab states to recognize the existence of Israel, then eventually you'll have this Arab wall versus the Iranians, and it doesn't matter what the Americans think anymore, because it's all taken care of. The, the debate here is whether to continue with those talks. There's a generational split in Saudi Arabia. The older generation, the king, King Salman, likes the idea of... Okay, that's going to do it for me. I'll be back in four hours with Ronnie Goldman, the philosopher. Take care. Bye-bye.